Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Chris Lawton, grew up in Boston, Lincolnshire, in the East Midlands part of England, where he discovered skateboarding in his teenage years. In 1996, he moved to Nottingham and connected with the strong local skateboarding scene. In the following years, aside from his work in academia, Chris started traveling with his friends and visited Malmö and Copenhagen. Inspired by the many initiatives around skateboarding that existed there, he launched Skate Nottingham in 2015, a non-profit which uses skateboarding as a tool to unlock learning and creativity. In 2021, Chris started a new role as Community Development Officer at Skateboard GB, the national governing body for skateboarding for the UK. So here's my conversation with Chris. I hope you'll enjoy. So yeah, thank you so much again. I'm really, really happy to get to talk to you. So we can maybe start with you telling me about like how you picked up a skateboard, maybe. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in uh, somewhere called Boston, uh, which is in a, a county in, in Lincolnshire, which is really, really rural. Okay. Uh, I lived about eight miles out of Boston. So my sister and I, we thought we were probably the only people under 14 in about uh, four to five mile radius when we were, when we were children growing up. Mm -hmm. um, so it's pretty isolated. And uh, one of those strange places in England, maybe similar to kind of parts of the Midwest in America, where you're kind of 10 years behind the rest of kind of the global north in terms of youth culture and all that sort of stuff. And my, my dad was a super keen dinghy sailor, okay. obsessively keen dinghy sailor. So he worked for uh, boat builders. And uh, so over weekend, he'd be competing somewhere. And um, as we got a little bit older, we would go with him wherever he was he was going, mm -hmm. um, initially around around the UK and then around Europe in the summer quite a lot. And uh, that meant I was kind of seeing people from outside of uh, this kind of very rural part outside of uh, Boston in, in Lincolnshire. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of like, I guess, towards the late 80s, I started seeing skateboarders. So we went to La Rochelle in France. Yeah. We go to Cornwall quite a lot. And... Um, I guess sort of because of the surf scene in Cornwall, there was kind of a strong skate scene in some of the kind of uh, the parts of Cornwall, like Newquay or Falmouth, where, where they'd also be sailing. And like as a, like a 10, 11 year old, I was kind of super, I'd not really seen the Back to the Future thing because you know, my, oh, yeah. my, my life was pretty, pretty isolated. We kind of watched what my parents watched on TV or what have you. We didn't have an awful, awful lot of autonomy. Mm -hmm. So I just started seeing these kind of snippets of skateboarding. And it just like the clothes that people wore and kind of how they looked. And as a really shy young man, how skateboarders seem to be like a little crew. Yeah. Uh, whilst not being the kind of a football lads or what we kind of call townies in, in Britain or did in the 90s, kind of lads who like fighting, they're kind of hyper masculine. They're kind of like the bullies at school. Right. And skaters seem to have these little crews that weren't like that. And the other thing that I guess kind of started reeling me in is uh, the little village news agent, the kind of little weird shop that would sell newspapers, magazines, sweets and alcohol. Also sold um, initially Rad magazine when I was kind of somewhere between kind of 11 and 12, 13, a men's sidewalk magazine when that came in in my kind of later teens. Okay. I didn't have a skateboard. I had no idea of how to access skateboarding, but I was kind of beca becoming a fan and becoming kind of 
by a sort of a degree of separation, kind of a bit obsessed with it. Okay. And uh, I was really into the Beastie Boys and Fugazi, because weirdly Boston was a, and it still has a really strong hardcore punk scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was kind of like 10 years behind Britain in a lot of ways, but had quite a strong alternative music scene. So I started playing bass guitar in my kind of early to mid-teens and got in a bunch of punk and hardcore bands. Nice. And we sort of, we dressed like skateboarders, like shaving hair, baggy chinos, white t-shirt, Converse One Stars um, in the kind of like early to mid-90s kind of skate outfit, I guess. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the guys, older guys I met through hardcore skated. I wasn't in the same town as them, so I had no contact to start skateboarding. Okay. But I was kind of, kind of being increasingly switched on. And uh, my sister and I kind of like felt we were like almost like fans of youth culture. And we created this idealized vision in our tiny little cottage in the middle of nowhere about what youth culture might be. Mm. And we thought it was like super politically engaged um, because we were just reading, you know, The Enemy and Melody Maker in Britain as a really good, in the late 80s, early 90s, a really strong music press in the UK where people like Paul Morley and Simon Reynolds were writing about music in a very politically informed way. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of getting little bits of references in. So they talk about Foucault or Antonio Gramsci and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, yeah, basically Marxian thought. So I kind of assumed young people wore cool clobber, hung around in mega diverse groups, black, Asian, women, guys, people from a queer community, all in these kind of mega diverse mixing pots. And they were really, really politically engaged. And skateboarding was part of that. And everyone liked the Beastie Boys and Fugazi and then Mm -hmm, mm Wu-Tang. And then I got to university in Nottingham and I found out that, yeah, the majority of young people are not like that (laughs) and are just as boring as young people in Boston. Yeah. But just before I... So I decided to go to university in Nottingham uh, because of what I read about Mm-hmm. of a skate scene in Sidewalk Mag. So the, the Nottingham scene was, was really strong in the late 90s. I went to university in 1996 for winter of. Right. And at that time, Ben Powell, who was the editor of Sidewalk Surfer, or Sidewalk as it became known, the kind of the main, the longest running British skate magazine that went online in the mid-2010s. Okay. And then it's, uh, its financial backer pulled the plug a couple of years later, alongside Kingpin. It was it was owned by the same financial backer as Kingpin by that time. Mm-hmm. And all those guys ended up having to find other work. But through the 90s and 2000s particularly, it was kind of the, the centre of British skateboarding and its moral voice. And I'll sort of come back to that, I think, yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. as we, we talk about things. Sure. And Ben, Ben at the time, kind of lived in, in Nottingham. He's a pretty good skateboarder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Andy Horsley, the photo editor, also moved to Nottingham. And then a guy called Stephen King, not the author, the skate photographer Kingy, who's from the kind of Liverpool area. He also lived in Nottingham. So we had Sidewalk and then Document Magazine really located in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guys that started Unabomber Skateboards in the 90s, Pete Helicar, Alan Rushbrook, Harry Bastard, Alan Cuthbert's son to his mum. They also lived in Nottingham. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A guy called John Weverall, who was in the early stages of Blueprint, when it was known as Panic Blueprint. He was a Nottingham skater and a really, really kind of um, important early British stylish tech skater. Okay. Um, so sort of Gino style switch flips in the kind of mid to late 90s. Okay, okay. Um, and he wrecked his ankles and got a job at Paul Smith and faded out skateboarding about the same sort of time as I, as I moved to Nottingham. But he also had these kind of iconic spots 
old market square where you could see Kareem Campbell would come on like a world trip. Mm-hmm. There's a rad photograph that shows Dill, Gino, Keenan Milton, all these guys just, just chilling in old market square. On a weekend, you'd see Mark Baines, the Shipman brothers, mm-hmm. you know, these heavy hitters skating there, Baines and Shipman from just north of Nottingham in Worksop, a small town um, in, in, in Nottinghamshire kind of coal mining communities. So it was a real, real like late 90s hotspot. Mm-hmm. So I deliberately chose Nottingham because I, I, it had a good history department at the university and it, I thought it was kind of where it was at. Right. And it was kind of familiar to me because it was 50 miles away from where I grew up. So it was a big city and not a terrifying big city if you're a, a hick from, from the middle of nowhere. And so what did you study when you went to university? You studied like history, right? I started off studying history and then I specialized in modern history and cultural history. Right. And particularly the, the cultural history of Japan was going to be my the PhD I never did. <laughs> What uh, prevented you from uh, going uh, along and doing that uh, PhD? Did you just start working and just life got in the way kind of? Or Yeah, after I graduated, after doing that kind of a bit lost, I wanted to stay in Nottingham. So before I moved to Nottingham, that summer, the summer when I was sort of 18, I kind of dabbled with skateboarding mm-hmm. uh, as much as like friends, older brothers who had boards, that kind of access to it. None of my friends skated. I didn't know anyone who skated. No one in my year skated at, at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a few older guys who like, I could just spot them. They're wearing like fresher hoodies, American Mark Johnson's. They just looked cool and I wanted to be part of their gang. Right. And I, I kind of knew they skated. Later I found one of them was Ian Passmore who went on to be part of filming uh, Blueprints Lost and Found. He also grew up in Boston, but okay. he was a few years older than me, so I never knew him when he, when he lived in Boston. But I was, sort of, I was just super aware. Mm-hmm. So I managed to get my hands on a skateboard for kind of university orientation trip. I, like, I sacked that off. I went into, into Nottingham to the, the skate shop and bought myself like the cheapest shop brand complete I could get my hands on, okay. which was at the time like quite a good board because... The little brand that was started out of the skate shop Roller Snakes, which became a, a big online store, had a mini ramp that Tom Penny skated in and stuff. So, you know, Nottingham was really important in kind of late 90s British skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Roller Snakes created the environment that Sidewalk Magazine came out of. An STM brand became STM Zine, which became Sidewalk eventually. Okay. And if you want to hear about that story, um, Ben Powell's done a great interview with uh, the Looking Sideways pod all about that kind of background. But I bought an STM deck from Roller Snakes, which was kind of like a, a shop brand. Mm-hmm. And it was good enough to learn to ollie on. So over the summer before I went to university, I learned to ollie. And I could like ollie up curbs. I'd get the board to flip, but I couldn't land it. Mm-hmm. I could do frontside 180s and stuff. So I, I had enough kind of orientation and I started dressing like a skateboarder started off as like a hardcore kid and then becoming more like wearing world t-shirts and stuff and becoming more like a skater by the time I by October 96 um so then I could kind of like introduce myself to skaters and start getting in the mix Mm -hmm. which happened quite quickly although I was starting at 18 you're at a real disadvantage the people that became my friends and I'm really really privileged to say are still my friends the guys that I started skating with in 96. Mm-hmm. Most of them are still skate and a large majority of them are still like my closest friends now, which is the beauty of skateboarding, I guess. That yeah. Particularly in my, my 40s now, so many of my friends from past work don't really have any other male friends. And I have this really gr- wonderful, like supportive group of, 
of male friends that have been through kind of thick and thin together because of skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, so that rapid induction in skateboarding gave me the community I'd never had as a, as a child growing up in a in a rural environment, being highly dyspraxic, struggling a bit at school, being very shy, having a lisp, getting to secondary school in a nearby town, having a really kind of nasty bullying culture. So it's like a shy kid with a lisp who was terrible at sport because I was dyspraxic. You're just lined up to be kind of a bully's favourite person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finding skateboarding and finding I could still be still be socially awkward, still be a bit of a nerd, but have a community around me that kind of gave a shit. Meant when I then graduated and finished university, I, I, I really wanted to stay in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And I was planning to do a PhD and planning to do it at Sheffield that had a very good uh, Far East Asian studies department. Okay. And I wanted to spend a year teaching English in Japan whilst doing my PhD so I'd improve my, my language. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was studying Japanese in, in evening class and geeking out on Japanese skateboarding yeah, yeah. Um, at, at the time. And that was just starting what was it, kind of discovering this really unique identity that, you know, people like Nick Palomino has done an amazing job in, Nick Sharrett uh, has done an amazing job in capturing and bringing to British and European skateboarding. Yeah, because we're talking about a time, sorry to cut you off, but uh, we're, we're talking about a time pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-everything, uh, social networks. So to get like uh, Japanese skate videos in the late 90s, I'm sure is uh, quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like following the cookie trail and people like Ben Powell in Sidewalk. You had such an important role in this mm-hmm. as kind of like a, a you know growing up as an outsider himself in, in in Yorkshire being quite a bookish kid and finding and he's five years older than I am so sort of a generation above me mm-hmm. finding the same kind of trail as a, as a teenager that takes him to skateboarding the same references that is both the dumbest thing on earth and also really quite <laughs> clever yeah and starts kind of switching you on to all sorts of other things around culture and politics And then distilling that in his writing in Sidewalk. So then when I get a copy of Sidewalk, as a kind of lonely kid in a traveling eight miles on a, on a bus to go to another quite small school and just reading Sidewalk again and again and again, I'm a bus there and I'm bus back from school, like an hour and a half bus journey. Mm. And hearing like Ben's voice through this, this page and then finding out about progressive politics, like left-wing politics. The generation before us in the 1980s would have had that education from the music press. Right, right, right. And as Britpop came along and, and, and British music became a lot less politically radical and became a lot more mainstream, music slowed down and became all about nostalgia. Skateboarding sped up. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. skateboarding told me about the privilege of the global north and about how we needed to be a lot more open-minded about other cultures. And it wasn't just a monoculture of Britain and America. Yeah. It started telling me about my privilege as a white male and where I might then leave my activism and trying to kind of give up some of that power. And, you know, the, the intersection between culture, fashion, music and the physical act of skateboarding and how that had radical potential. Mm-hmm. Reading something like Sidewalk in the late 90s started planting those, those seeds. Right. Getting to Nottingham and finding, seeing that in the flesh, meeting Ben and the kind of the, the Unabomber crew before they then moved to London and then moved to Oxford. But I could not leave skateboarding. I could not leave Nottingham when I graduated because of just this interlinked wonderfulness in contrast to quite an unhappy teenage life. Yes, I understand. So I, I, I got a job in government and that ended up being a really great opportunity working in regional regeneration and economics, basically. So when the opportunity to pursue a, an academic career came up, I felt like I was doing something more meaningful mm-hmm. because I was working with post-industrial cities 
research about how people are excluded from the what was then into the 2000s from the new Labour government and you had a huge amount of investment. So lots and lots of opportunity, mm-hmm. European money coming in, the seeds being sowed that would lead to Brexit in terms of some communities being excluded and some being ex- included. It seemed working within government had more kind of opportunity for social change than pursuing an academic career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I fell in love and settled down. And I had my boys around me that I didn't really want to like go to Sheffield or London and or Japan and leave. Yeah, you, you had a lot of the things going on and you didn't want to kind of leave all this behind and, and just go to Japan. I understand. But like, do you, do you think about it sometimes? Like what would have happened if I had gone, you know? Well, my, my daughter is four and she's really got into Pokemon in like a massive way. Okay. Two weeks before Christmas, after we bought her all her presents, she didn't care about Pokemon. A week and a half before Christmas, she is suddenly the most important thing in her life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as long as she retains this, this obsession, like going to Japan, geeking out on the skate culture and, and, and having that time with Maisie might be how I, how I kind of like refresh that interest. Mm-hmm. But career-wise, I've been so, so fortunate. So I don't, I don't have any regrets career-wise at all. I've, I've experienced that, that, that look of ill-informed decisions that are being taken on a whim Mm -hmm. uh, and often through a level of um, risk aversion. I know Nottingham, I've got friends here, there's a job here. It has the word research in it. I know a little bit about research. Mm -hmm. I can still do my skate life in the evenings and weekends. So it's quite, and I can remain with with a girl that became my wife every day rather than seeing her at weekends and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So kind of risk averse early career decisions ended up having really fortunate outcomes for me so yeah yeah yeah. and so so you were telling me about this first job that you did after university and eventually you went into academia you started teaching right yeah so so yeah tell me about maybe like these first uh, experiences that eventually brought you into creating uh skate nottingham even though that's a bit farther down the road but uh yeah so a little bit of background i guess for for listeners who it might not be from the uk The UK is a very centralised country, mm-hmm. particularly now, and that also affects skateboarding, and maybe we'll come back to that later, but the UK government is focused in Whitehall, in a very small part of London. All the main departments around there, that's where the Houses of Parliament is. There's a street in London where a number of the main departments of state are. There isn't really the same kind of federalised regional government that there is in France or Germany, for example. Right. There isn't the strong communes that you have in, in, in the Nordic countries. And during the 2000s, there's, there's vast inequality. Mm-hmm. So the UK is much more unequal than any other rich European country. Right. So our kind of levels of inequality, and this was part of my job, I was a, a data analyst to start with. And then I became more of a social scientist as I went through this government role and more of a kind of a policy person. But to start with, I used to measure where regions in the UK sat alongside all of, of European regions. Mm-hmm. And our, our inequality in terms of, of growth value added, which is the wealth generated or unemployment or access to education, looks much more like America and much less like, like a European country. And one of the reasons for that, there's lots of reasons for that, our kind of industrial uh, history, you know, the richest, the centres of industry in, in the British Industrial Revolution became rapid decline as our kind of leading industries changed around the turn of the 20th century. So shipbuilding, heavy industry, all the way through the 20th century, those industries were dying, which meant the likes of Liverpool, Manchester, across Yorkshire, the North East, Newcastle Gateshead, 
places like Nottingham with lace and textiles, bike manufacture, all those cities declined through the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't have institutions that could work out a route forward into, into modernity, that decline was, was really significant and there wasn't really any stopping of it right. until the Conservatives in the 1990s under Michael Heseltine had a, had a kind of a regional programme. And then that was really put on steroids in the late 90s, 2000s with the, the Labour government and what was called the Regional Development Agencies or the RDAs. Okay. They basically took European money, European structural funds, and spent millions of it where it was arguably needed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I worked for one of those organisations and we were a very young organisation and they were very aggressive in recruiting kind of quite high potential young people from working class backgrounds. Okay. So I was immediately in a kind of a petri dish of high achieving weirdos, many of whom have had kind of less than easy backgrounds. So we were suddenly kind of a crew of people that were quite ambitious and quite driven by by our kind of political values in research and policy jobs. Mm-hmm. So either people who were a bit older than me who had worked in Whitehall, who had kind of coupled off and decided they wanted to move somewhere they could buy a house mm-hmm. uh, and then moved to Nottingham and worked for this organisation, or people my own age who had a similar background to me. And we suddenly found ourselves... You know, in our early 20s, making very, very high stakes political decisions mm-hmm. and, and being in a, in a, in a very ambitious organisation that, that had you know, a physical impact on the area around us. That was appreciated by central government. So in 2007, I was seconded out to central government to work on the legacy of a major education and skills review called the Leach Review of Skills, which included the government objective that 50 percent of young people should go to university has become very controversial now, but at the time it was a very aspirational and quite, it was it was motivated by social mobility, which was really meaningful to me because I was the first person in my family to go to university, mm-hmm. followed by my sister who then did a PhD and she now works in, in Whitehall as a, a senior government science advisor. Oh, amazing. And we, we both had these kind of dyspraxia, dyslexia-like spectrum challenges. So we really benefited from that. Uh, that investment in social mobility and in education in, in the 90s and 2000s. Okay. And you know, I, I was very fortunate to have a lot of opportunities that allowed me to go from being a history graduate, and I did a master's in, in cultural history, mm-hmm. focusing on Japan and looking at identity and the role of the Second World War in, in, in Japanese cultural identity, comparisons to Germany, all that sort of stuff. I then became more of an economist and social scientist learning on the job in government. Right. So then when there was a change of government in 2010 and the Conservative government came in, although the Conservative-led coalition okay. under David Cameron and what we what became known as austerity, so very, very brutal cutting back of the public sector, me and everyone I worked with were sacked. Mm-hmm. Our organisations all over the country, this, this experiment with a more federalised approach to investment and, and economic policy was junked. And I was very fortunate in the, the university, the former polytechnic in the centre of, of Nottingham also had quite a kind of a proud legacy of providing opportunities to people from a lower income background. Mm-hmm. They recognised the research that myself and colleagues had been done doing in government and they, they gave us jobs. They generated these, um, these job descriptions and recruited the headhunted us directly from, from government. So David Cameron and George Osborne sacked us and uh, Nottingham Trent University um, kindly recruited us. Okay. And I, after a while of kind of doing kind of quasi-commercial consultancy, being sold back to the public sector, to doing the work that used to be in-house in government, I ended up moving into teaching. But right. a common thread, a kind of an interest in cities 
an interest in the North, an interest in the underdog, like an underdog scenes, have this very strong kind of uh, interplay with skateboarding. Right. And um, the bits of skateboarding, the, the, that excited me. So I was, I didn't care about LA. I cared about girl and, and kind of trilogy era world. But I cared much more about Gino and Keenan and Huff and New York and the Zoo York mixtape. Yes. I cared much more about like a little video that would come out from Chicago or whatever than a flashy West Coast video. Yeah, yeah I cared I much more about Jamal Williams and what became Hops and all that sort of stuff. And then the French scene, Puzzle Magazine. Oh, yeah. My wife's a linguist. She speaks very good French and, and German. Oh, nice. I'm like a, a weedy version of Bruce Willis in, in Die Hard in that I could speak English and bad English. <laughs> so my, my wife worked in a um, worked for Games Workshop, a war, war games company, okay. which Andy Horsley from Sidewalk now works for. And she had a kind of European customer service role. So we were going to France and Germany quite a lot okay. through the 2000s. And I got really into kind of like the underdog scenes, particularly in France, Lyon, Bordeaux, Puzzle Magazine, mm-hmm. Cologne in Germany. And then with, with a Nordic, particularly around, around Malmo, when that all started firing up, yes. I was kind of an early stan of that. I was just hyped on it and I was hyped on the, the will that went behind it. Yeah. When was your first time that you went to Malmo? I mean, that's a little bit later. So I'm working at university and I'm desperately unhappy. Mm-hmm. University has become a real sausage factory of um, mass teaching, like 200 students, a lot of administration, a lot of competitiveness, mm. a long hour culture, a very masculine long hour culture. The kind of more philanthropic research I was doing for, for public policy wasn't really being valued by the institution anymore. There'd been a change of personnel. So my original reason for recruitment had kind of faded a bit, I guess. Okay. And I felt like what I was doing in skateboarding at the weekends and the evening of just filming and kind of cultural production of being a, an average committed skateboarder was more meaningful socially than what I was doing in the nine to five. Sure, yeah. Uh, and then Phil Evans' Coping Mechanism came out, the film that Phil Evans made. Yes. Uh, kind of a passion project about the Malmö scene. Uh, Nick Sharrett had just started the Palomino. Oh, yeah. I turned 30 and was kind of thinking about what my identity was as a skateboarder and then suddenly this web store that sold all these really niche things that connected underdog scenes. Right, yeah. I suddenly kind of became Nick's biggest fan and frequently awkwardly tell him that to his embarrassment. Um, <laughs> and uh, I got hold of coping mechanism really on, on Nick's kind of recommendation on the Palomino. And it, had, it, it was life-changing, like me and a group of mates who were all doing similar jobs. So my friend Simon Benaki was working for a domestic violence charity. Mm-hmm. My friend Ben O'Taylor, who's a really great skateboarder who's been skating for a long time in Nottingham, he works and still works for a big homelessness charity called Framework. So we had these alternative, these out-of-skateboarding skills. Right, right. And we were all a little bit lost at that time. Skateboarding in Nottingham was being very, very brutally enforced against. Particularly younger people were being put in the back of police vans. If there was a skateboarding ban in the city, there wasn't much investment in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty hard to be a skateboarder. So from the early 2000s, when yeah, skateboarding was centred in Nottingham alongside London and Manchester and Bristol, by mid-2000s, it had really faded. So we watched Coping Mechanism. We were already doing a bit of DIY. We were already kind of travelling around the kind of the former industrial, former coal field parts of, of North Nottinghamshire and South Yorkshire. We are going to Sheffield a lot. Um, we'd seen Pontus's two films so, yeah, the strongest of the strange. Uh, and, in the search for mirac- yeah. and Search for Miraculous. Right, right, yeah. So, like, Yugo was one of my favourite skaters of kind of late 2000s, early 2010s. 
particularly because of his section in in, in Search for Miraculous and then Grey Area, the, the video that was made out of, out of Poland that he had a really great section in. Right. So when Coping Mechanism came out that told us how to do it, like how you can do this, mm-hmm. that was, we sat in a living room and we watched it together. The following summer, we went to Copenhagen and Malmö okay. for six days. And we were there to skate and party and stuff, but to also have our eyes peeled around kind of the architecture and the skate parks and to try and feel part of the scene. And we just made ourselves really boring to the shops and asked them loads of questions, uh, particularly in, in Street Lab. And oh, yeah. Street Lab and Street Machine in Malmo, Copenhagen, respectively, um, and uh, came back and started to skate Nottingham uh, straight afterwards. Right, so that yeah. would have been 2015, 16. And at that time, the only activism going on in British skateboarding was Longley South Bank, you know, the incredible victory of Longley South Bank. Right, yeah, yeah. And uh, Girl Skate UK, which started in 2014. You know, one of the most important people in value-driven British skateboarding is Danny Gallagher, who started Girl Skate UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of the story of of inclusive and more diverse skateboarding has been driven by her efforts, and they, you know they're still being insufficiently rewarded, I think, and insufficiently mm-hmm. celebrated. Lucy, Lucy Adams, a really, really important advocate and kind of living how you, living by your values. But other than that, there's Shreb North from the Northeast. That started in, in 2014 by David Palmer. Mm-hmm. So there's Longest South Bank, Girl Skate UK and Shreb North. And that was it in terms of ambitious, value-driven, non-profit skateboarding projects. In the UK. In the UK. Um, there was, and there's older projects. So uh, the Far Academy in Whitstable in Kent. Mm-hmm. You do really, really great work. Uh, I mean, Oxford Wheels Project in Oxford, sort of skate park campaigning and creating a, a safe space for, for people of all backgrounds to skate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were quite kind of regionally focused. A project that had, we're going to change this place, but also show other people how to do it and try and have this kind of wider transformation that affected creative and cultural, physical infrastructure, skate parks, public realm, focused on on disadvantaged young people who had barriers to accessing skateboarding, focused on women, girls, the LGBTQ community who had other intersecting barriers and tried to transform a city. There hadn't really been the, the, the history of that, I guess. Uh, and forgive me for anyone who sort of had tried that earlier and, and if I'm doing a bit of a disservice to. Within my generation, there wasn't a kind of a, a modern memory of doing that to that scale of ambition. Mm-hmm. And Longley South Bank showed us how to do that level of good activism in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. And Malma showed us how to do that, that good activism at a European level. Yes. So I immediately started annoying Gustav by email and, and Stu, uh, Stu McClure, and both of whom I'm you know, really fond of and they've been super generous with their time over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think you saw also that there were lots of, uh, basically lots of things in common between Malmö and uh, Nottingham, like the sizes of the cities and that kind of their overall background. Or So I, I guess you must have drawn a lot of influence from what they had been doing over there and what they've kept doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, something that Gustav said to me early days, Gustav Thamburg Eden, apologies yes. for my terrible pronunciation of anything <laughs> that isn't like... <laughs> yeah, so, so Gustav said something that was really, really important. He said um, kind of a mistake that skateboard projects make is they, they start with a sense of entitlement. They start angry with the city, the, the municipality. You have not given us this stuff. You do not listen to us. Uh-huh. We, us white, able-bodied, often middle-class men who are young, you are not giving us what we need. 
And what the guys in Malmö did very early on, what they realised very early on, was the benefits of skateboarding can meet a wider need across different aspects of the city. Mm-hmm. So Gustav said to me, don't go in about what the city should do for you. Start off with what you can do with the city. Yes, Link exactly. every one of your kind of pitches to an aspect of social need. And the other really important kind of metaphor he used was that skateboarding is an octopus. You know, we've oh, yes. all experienced it, the people that love skateboarding, that it connects to music, it connects to culture, etc. And there is transformational potential in that. Mm-hmm. So um, it encouraged to focus on what are Nottingham's problems. You know, Nottingham is a former industrial city, it has seen better days. It was one of the, the starting points of the British Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first industrialised cities in the world. All of these innovations came out of it. It still has a significant cultural impact on on British culture. So a great actor, Samantha Morton, Vicky McClure, This Is England, and um, Shane Meadows, all that stuff, very, very Nottingham locals. Right. Sleaford Mods, Jake Berg, if that's your cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Um, There's really good, strong hip-hop culture in the early 2000s. But, you know, there's a lot of decline and a lot lot of challenge. Mm. Nottingham's main industries were lace and textiles, bikes, tobacco, and all of that disappeared by the late 90s at the same time as Malmö lost shipbuilding. Mm-hmm. So Malmö lost, you know, Cockham's, Cockham's shipyard in the early 90s. And then there's the Swedish financial crisis. So Malmö went into population decline, real sense of crisis. Mm-hmm. And uh, then a real sense of revival, the bridge to Copenhagen, Malmö University being built. And that coincided with the skaters' activism. So they became key agents of change within that city's wider revival. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of kind of fortunate timing, but also you know, graft and imagination and, and a combination of really exceptional people. I mean, mm-hmm. the number of people from Alma that you've talked to on this podcast is, is really notable. Yeah. Um, and there's no mistake in that, that you know, a load of notable people ended up doing things together uh, at a similar time, mm-hmm. uh, which is a challenge in, in, in the UK that maybe we can talk about down the line. Mm-hmm. We don't have the same collectivist culture as some European countries do. We're far more individualist as a, as, as a culture, and that affects our, our skate culture. And uh, you know, looking at those challenges in Malmo, the wider, the core cities are both about 300 to 350,000 people. Okay. Their wider conurbations are both about 600,000. Mm-hmm. They're both the regional centres, Malmo of southern Sweden, Nottingham of the East Midlands. Uh, they're both very important industrial cities. They're both big immigrant cities. Yeah. And that really colours their um, their kind of cultural mix. Mm-hmm. It's kind of Jamaican and Caribbean immigration is really important to Nottingham and Nottingham's story. Nottingham is very, very ethnically diverse, much more so than the wider East Midlands, which feeds into its skate and hip-hop culture. Mm. Malmö is far more ethnically diverse than a lot of the rest of Sweden. And there's a really strong education sector and a lot of strong kind of social society, civic society partners like galleries, etc., that, that skateboarding can partner with and a rich skateboard history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Gustav had heard about Nottingham was because he obviously spent quite a long time living in, in in the UK and skated for Unabomber. That's right. Yes. So so kind of none of this was news to him. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gave us our playbook in Nottingham. Although we never had the resources that came from a rapid municipal commitment to support, we remain more of a guerrilla project. Really, until very recently. Okay. Uh, we remained delivery, and I think this is an important message. If you want to change the world, move from activism to delivery as fast as you can. And where Skater Stan, Skate Pal, Free Movement, Concrete Jungle, they're so exciting and interesting. 
because they're not shouting at the world to bring resources to this place. They're changing a reality on the ground through their delivering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So another thing that we, we really learned from all of that stuff, I think maybe where Skate Nottingham are a bit different than a lot of more UK-focused projects is we started looking outwards very rapidly. We became like the biggest fan of Skate Stan of Skate Pal. Mm-hmm. Their free movement, we, we're really close friends with, with the free movement crew and the Concrete Jungle crew. We did an exchange last spring. We do a lot of stuff together. Right, yeah. We try to see ourselves as part of that global movement as quickly as we could uh, and, try, and try and just not be know-it-all white men. Yeah. We wanted to be in learning mode as early as we could and think, how can we, be, we always be doing better? Sure. So, um, yeah, just looking at Malma, seeing how that was done, seeing how similar Malma was, and then looking at all these other projects worldwide mm-hmm. and being quite purposive about it. But it's remained very difficult. We've never had that kind of Malma City Council-like embrace of a pat on the head, like you guys have done great. Come into the room. We've always had to be making up, making reality change through through hard work. Yeah, not that you know, Malmo isn't a, a, an outcome of massive not hard not work. Sure, but uh, I understand. Yeah, but the door has kind of only ever been half open. Um, I, I think that that's a common challenge across across the UK mm-hmm. that we don't really have the collectivist political culture that means our house is in order in skateboarding. Mm. We bicker between ourselves. We don't necessarily, we're not all signed up to the mission. Yeah. Um, a lot of skaters think it's very kooky, and we'll tell you so. Mm. The Malmö guys talk a lot about the importance of the club culture in Sweden, and that like joining a club was not a weird thing to do, mm. which means early doors with uh, the mini ramp project in the 90s that became the, the infrastructural origin of Brigaria. Yeah. It meant they could engage with a city with this enormous club or look at all the members we've got mm. you can't you can't do that in britain okay. a lot of people will tell you to fuck off if you ask them mm. to join a club <laughs> it just isn't that tradition of people skate because they don't want to join the club exactly yeah, yeah and and we haven't worked out how to make that cool we probably we, we might never never do so it's try i think what skate nottingham has tried to do is to develop a, a british solution to the the malma success story yeah, 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 translated in uh, British uh, culture and setting environment, yeah. Yeah, obviously recognising that Britain is a rich country. It's a very unequal country. I'm never going to undermine the level of disadvantage that we're dealing with. In Nottingham is the, has the lowest household income bar nowhere in the UK, the lowest gross disposable household income, according to the ONS, significantly lower. Mm-hmm. It's got a £9 billion economy, so it creates a lot of wealth. Very little of that come back to the people who live in Nottingham. So it's got very, very disadvantaged post-war estates around the city centre. Okay. Very, very ethnically diverse, disadvantaged estates. So there's significant need, but it isn't the same level of need as Tom and Tim and Troy face in, in, in Jamaica with Concrete Jungle, mm. or Charlie and Theo are working with in, 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 in the West Bank and Gaza, Gaza Strip. And, but it's... Our set of problems and barriers are different and quite specific to the UK mm-hmm. political economy and the UK skate scene. And so what were some of the first steps of um, starting um, Skate Nottingham? So you said it was around 2015, right? Yeah, we started sort of playing with it around 2015. We got serious in 2017. We created a, an organisational entity, a legal entity okay. that would allow us to get money. But we started doing like film nights and skate park campaigning. Um, a bit of the first project we did was a little skate park right next door to uh, the city's main kind of street plaza. Got to stand to market. 
you know, plan B and primitive and cliche have visited there. And it's a slightly downhill, shiny black marble, great big open plaza with a big kind of hero set of three. If you want to huck, huck yourself down that and then just loads of ledges and manis. Okay. And it will have on a sunny evening, you know, more than 200 skaters hanging there. Wow. And then you've got all of the bars and kind of, it's the frontier of gentrification between the city, the, the city centre and a very low income, working class, kind of mainly social housing, council estate community. Okay. With a lot of get, sort of gang violence and stuff going on on one side of the road. The other side of the road, you've got Stanton Market. In the mid 2000s, the Nottingham City Council wanted to stop skateboarding in Stanton Market. So after we created like a Facebook group, <laughs> mid 2000s, peak mid 2000s, Facebook group of Skate Nottingham, the council approached us and said, Would you help us build a little skate park in this small park, quite dilapidated small park by Stanton Market? So we have a reason to chuck the skaters out. And we were like, First of all, no. But, you know, if we can have this kind of conversation, and it was a very difficult project because the budget fell by a third during its very short lifespan. So rather than a little street plaza, uh, four joined paths were created with a big hole in the middle. And Canvas Spaces, John Flood, bless him, the, the skate park designer developer, he ended up delivering the project to a lot less than he'd originally mm-hmm. kind of designed the, the skate park for. And that received quite a, a heavy um, negative reaction from the skateboarding community. I had BMXs from Texas threatening to beat the crap out of me over Facebook Messenger as soon as images wow. of this weird little place were coming up on, on the internet. Okay. But it meant that the city council learnt who skateboarders were. Mm-hmm. So as soon as this funny little place opened, we started activating it. We did a coach development program. We did three beginner sessions and alongside that three women and girls sessions. Half of the initial coaches that qualified with everything that they needed were, were women. And we started really collaborating with the residents association who were all kind of lower income pensioners who were picking up the litter and really doing wonderful work to make this quite neglected park a lot nicer. Uh, so we found kind of real common ground with them. Mm-hmm. And then we started working with other a charity called the Renewal Trust, who, who kind of are the saviors of this local area. They invest very significantly there, where a lot of the public sector has kind of retreated from there. So the city council found out what skateboarders could be like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So although the skate park itself was quite problematic, we hope to make it a, a living DIY this year where we fill in the middle mm-hmm. and it constantly changes and we do construction skills stuff from it. It's still really our base. It's where we deliver a lot of our sessions, a lot of our youth outreach. But because it's a hub where we can get all over the city, yeah, um, it's really important despite it being a kind of weird little place. Mm-hmm. The transformational element of it is the city started massively de-escalating because they realised they could work with us. And rather, yeah. they, they, they have this terrible quote. They published this uh, youth development strategy in 2016, and it said, I know the quote so well I can quote it verbatim. Despite being non-violent, skateboarders are often seen to gather with the other undesirables, including prostitutes and drug dealers. So they, they had this, this really negative framing of skateboarding as a kind of a, a driver yeah, yeah. of antisocial behaviour, yeah. alongside a kind of a, a hangover from a new Labour days of um, social liberalism, but quite an authoritarian approach to local politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets categorised as fear of youth. A lot of um, bylaws came in during the 2000s that didn't just prevent you from skateboarding, but you couldn't walk into a town centre with more than two other people under 18 and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you t- telling the, about this uh, at Pushing Borders. Yeah, it seems pretty crazy. 
How about was in Manchester, in Birmingham, in Sheffield, in Nottingham, all these, these major your cultural capitals all had these anti-skate bylaws. Mm. And that, some of that persisted into the 2010s. Mm-hmm. And for us, this little skate park was transformational for that. The city council realised we were, in Gustav's terms, a good partner rather than being a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and from there, things just gained scale. Yeah, the door was open. Yeah, partially. So, yeah, it was quite, quite a struggle, as you said. At the beginning was uh, difficult. Yeah, um, but, I mean... We have a strong sense of purpose. So from the get-go, we were delivering and delivering at scale. Hundreds of young people, including the kinds of young people that the city were unable to reach through mainstream sports and mainstream education. Mm. We were providing kind of wider youth work and creating cultural skills to sort of bring it without... We didn't have a skate park and we didn't have a kind of a mainstream educational partner, but we could provide a little bit of that kind of inspiration and some of that programming. Mm-hmm. And then in 2018, we got our first major funding, which was a National Lottery Grant, to do skateboard photography courses, which we did with some of the Sidewalk alumni, Matt Matt Clark and then Andy Andy Horsley. And Matt got kind of early career photographer's exhibition experience Mm -hmm. and kind of zine and zine-making experience. But by that time, the British skate media had kind of collapsed. So Sidewalk had gone busted, had a plug pulled. Free mm. was only just kind of coming into its own. Grey was very London-focused. That was its kind of, that was Henry Kingsford's objective, that Grey would be a London magazine. North in Scotland was all about, yeah, amazing. I love, I love North, but, mm. and Graham Tate's lovely. But his focus was all about photography on film and international scope. So we didn't really have anyone covering the UK skate scene in the same way that Sidewalk was covering it. Right. So talking to Ben or, or Andy and what was really, really, really kind of influential and inspiring to me when I was a, a young person was um, they had a hypothetical every kid called Little Tommy Birkins. Okay. Little Tommy Birkins could live in any small town, Grimsby or Cleethorpes or Inverness or uh, a little town outside Swansea or, or Southern Cornwall. It didn't matter. Little Tommy Birkins did not live in a major city. Mm. Little Tommy Birkins was not a sponsored skateboarder. Little Tommy Birkins needed to be spoken to. So they had a kind of, this is who we're doing it for. Whenever we make an an issue of Sidewalk, that issue will talk to Little Tommy Birkins. Right, okay. It will be something that is accessible and inspiring to all of British skateboarding, wherever it might be, not just the cool bit. Yeah. And the cool bit, I'm never going to like talk down the importance of skateboarding being cool because it's what makes us try and try and try and try and do it and really want to do it beyond our own kind of physical capabilities to do it. But it has to be coupled with accessibility. Mm. Like cool is a thing that draws you in and makes you a lifer. But if there are too many barriers, cool doesn't matter. Mm. And after Sidewalk wound up, the mainstream of British skateboarding became much smaller in the way that it was presented to. No one cared about little Tommy Birkins anymore. People cared about kind of cool looking guys with their beanies just right over their eyebrows, <laughs> skating mainly in London and Manchester. Yeah, They're yeah. principally London. And it became very hard to communicate what we were doing in Nottingham to the wider world until Pushing Borders came along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The London edition was in 2018, right? Yeah, I remember Malmö the following summer. Right, right. And you were actually invited to talk on this panel with Gustav, whom you've mentioned. And uh, the panel was about, what was the theme of the whole panel? Was, was it like skate, skate, building skate-friendly cities or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was kind of like a dream team of heroes. Yeah. It was chaired by Ocean Howell, 
former super cool yeah, SF legend. skateboarder <laughs> and kind of one of the founding fathers of skate academia. Yes. You know, two seminal essays, one about Love Park, one about Embargadero. I haven't read them, but I'd be curious to check them out. Yeah, I need to do and that. And Matt Duke can write. They're a good read as well. You know, some academic articles are, are, are hard going and, and both of Ocean's articles are really, I guess he's doing other things and he's not super stoked to constantly be led back to his kind of early career yeah, uh, yeah. work. Mm-hmm. But um, so he chaired it yeah. and it was about, you know, how do we achieve skate friendly cities and going back to that that idea of entitlement, why should we achieve skate-friendly cities? Yes. What is the greater good of a skate-friendly city? Yeah, how can how can skateboarding help uh, and be a positive contribution to a city rather than an yeah. nuisance? And, uh, yeah. So uh, Alexis Sablone talked about design. Daphne from uh, Brixton's Baddest right. talked about the role of a skate shop and the hub and her experience of growing up in Athens and being kind of a young person during the financial crisis in Athens. And then uh, Stu was co-chairing it and he talked a lot about the long of South Bank storing. Right. Uh, and then that was followed in 2019 by a really important similar discussion with Christian Eblin from Seattle and Leo Valls from Bordeaux. Oh, yeah. Picking up on a, on a, on a similar kind of set of questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for the work that we'd done in Nottingham, it was it was nice to have a platform because I think we had done important work about by that time, being a kind of an early adopter mm-hmm. and weren't getting other other ways of talking about it. The other thing we really wanted to do is we wanted to be an open book. So we're going to excel in some areas and fuck up in others. And we want you all to learn from that mm-hmm. and, and start your own activism. And we wanted to be as generous as Gustav was with me, with everyone else and say, anything that we create, any application form or safeguarding policy is yours, just ask and we'll give it to you. We're not going to have any kind of commercial secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you want to start up a thing, we're there to kind of be here to, to hold your hand. So Pushing Borders was a really important opportunity to throw that offer out. Yeah. And uh, a really great a really great discussion about some really important issues. For sure, yeah. It looked like great events, yeah. It's too bad it, it, they didn't uh, keep it going, but uh, I'd love to see a new edition of it. Like, wherever it is, I'll do my best to go to attend because it looked like really rad events, yeah. I think uh, Leo threw down the invite for, for Bordeaux at the end of the Malma event. Oh, they were, they were going to do it over there? I mean, obviously covid so the assumption has been pushing borders three would most likely be in Bordeaux, and obviously no, be it makes a, sense. Yeah, a lovely place to spend a week. So that, let's hope that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Nottingham would be cool. I mean, why not? I mean, we have the infrastructure to to host it. So the new space that we might talk about a bit later is at the foot of Nottingham Contemporary Art Gallery, okay. which has got an enormous auditorium. It's also next to this big further education college hub. This also has a big auditorium. Mm-hmm. So, but the argument of whether it should be in another British location is an important ethical one to have. So yeah, I put it out there now. If Pushing Borders wanted to be in Nottingham, I would uh, metaphorically buy any handoff to, to host it. But yeah. the following point of whether it should be in Nottingham is an important one. Cool. We'll see uh, if it happens. Yeah, fingers crossed. So uh, tell me a bit more about like um, Skate Nottingham and maybe the more recent work that you've been doing. And, and also, I know that you connected with, um, I'm going to butcher the name of this city, but it's Tampere, Tampere? In... Tampere, Tampere. Tampere, okay, in Finland. Imagine how you would say it normally, then speed it up a bit. That appears to be how, okay. how Finns talk. Uh, Tampere. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
And so, so yeah, tell, tell me about like uh, the connection with, with them over there who are doing like similar initiatives than you are doing in Nottingham and in the rest of the UK. And also you mentioned something that I, I thought was interesting was the EduSkate life skills programs developed with Concrete Jungle Foundation. Developed by Concrete Jungle Foundation and then, and then kind of piloted by the likes of, of Skate Nottingham and Free Movement and a number of other seven organizations worldwide that are, are piloting right. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so really after Pushing Borders Malmo, there was an explosion of activism in, in the UK. So Skate Southampton started before Pushing Borders Malmo and between the two Pushing Borders. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a next super imaginative, super ambitious project. Southampton may be in the richer south half of the UK, but it's it was bombed very badly in the Second World War. And then it's a harbour town, a port town, is not a great thing to be economically in Britain because... Britannia does no longer rule the wave. So it's another post-industrial part of the country. Okay. Their kind of superpower is their, their abundant imagination. They just come out with these amazing project ideas. And then escape Manchester. And Manchester is a, a city crying out for activism. And Danny Abawala being part of the, um, the Pushing Borders crew. Yep. Danny lived with her partner Christian in, in, in Manchester and still does. Okay. With someone called Patrick Crick. She established Skate Manchester in between, well, just after Pushing Borders Malmo. I and mean, then after us, we've had like, yeah, organization after organization after organization. So Skate Suffolk and Ipswich. Ipswich has got a wonderful like skate history. Mm-hmm. Everyone on board is in Walthamstow. Birmingham Skate Spaces that have come out of the Bournebrook DIY story. Hackney Bumps and the Grove DIYs in, in London. I'm going to be missing people, but um, obviously the OG, Shrebinorf, Girl Skate UK. Uh, Shrebinorf has kind of gone from strength to strength as well. So it went from being quite a sparse world to being a lot of activism in Britain. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and a lot of, of it going under the radar. Mm-hmm. So I did a talk in the Grove DIY in, in South London alongside Tom from Critchley from Concrete oh, Jungle yeah. Foundation. Right. And I asked... Like it was you know, relatively well attended, about 40 people. Um, and I said, you know, who's heard of Shrebbing North? No hands go up. Mm-hmm. You know, who's heard of Girl Skate UK? Like three or four hands go up. Wow. And I'm not blaming people. You know, these things are undercovered. Yeah. So Nottingham kept on going from strength to strength. And we decided to kind of flex a little bit and, and look over to what is it that Malmo and Copenhagen have both done to take their delivery to the next level. Mm-hmm. And I asked our staff, I'm going to swear again, again, I apologize. Like, mm-hmm. He said, you need a fucking big event. So we, we got a national lottery grant, um, a national lottery small grant, so £10,000, um, yeah, significant amount of cash, to deliver what we call the Skateboarding in the City Festival in right. 2019. So right after Pushing Borders then? Right after Pushing Borders. It was, it was a, two weeks before Pushing Borders Malmo. Oh, okay. And um, we had a Q&A panel discussion that then fed into Pushing Borders. So I chaired a workshop in Pushing Borders Malmo that had some of the questions that had been tabled during this earlier thing. Okay. We had a, a filming competition for a week where people would take advantage of the liberalisation of skateboarding in Nottingham and, and skate the city and film and edit. And then we had a the, the city's art cinema hosted us to do a great big auditorium and screen room. We, we screened the skate vids. The winners then, then went to Malmo. Mm-hmm. So we, we funded the winners to go to Skate Malmo Street and rep, represent Knots and the UK uh, happened at the same time as Pushing Borders, Malmo. Okay. So basically all these old geeks like me went along with kind of young guns <laughs> who had kind of earned their, their seat on the plane through banging video edits. Okay. And then a series of more set-piece comps alongside kind of installations around the city and all that sort of stuff. 
And the guys at Tampa Ray had just got an article in The Guardian called Uphill Slope. Okay. That talked about the activism they'd been doing, and no one knew about it. So they had started a very similar kind of Malma story where the skaters had organised around a DIY, the Matchstick Factory DIY, and built an institution around that, I guess, a crew mm. that, that organised. They got a little bit of funding from a local sponsor. The city saw that capacity. At the same time, the city were developing this big former industrial area, these sort of RoboCop-like uh, vacant brick factory buildings, basically, that was in a decade's time going to become a sustainable flash set of apartments by the lake. But until they became that, it was going to be a meanwhile space. Okay. So the skaters proposed and costed a four-year plan to build a, an indoor legitimised DIY that became Kennelly DIY. And create a whole business plan and engagement plan around that. They included events, big events. They do two big trilogy in Manzarama, two big kind of festivals a year that okay. the city fund them for. And then that allowed them to do more and more. So Miko Kiranvita, who works at Tampere University, mm-hmm. uh, he worked uh, alongside Temo Grunland, who runs the, the skate social enterprise, which is called the Ramp Dogs or Karakoirat, which I probably butchered. <laughs> They developed a proposal with a high school, which in, in British terms is a further education college, 16 to 19-year-olds, to create a skate programme, which okay. started this academic year. So Tom from Concrete Jungle and I visited them uh, last April to visit the school and look at all the stuff they, they were doing. But it never really benefited from a kind of Malma cool. Mm. Yako Jarden and his sponsorship with, D- with DC and Element. He owns a skate shop, although he's moved oh, yeah. to Hel- Helsinki. Okay. Maniana Skate Shop. And he's you know, really involved in supporting the social enterprise there. But Malma had managed to have a kind of a Quicksilver, Vans, Nike connections, and all of the great video content that came from Malma that meant that, and obviously Polar and Pontus, yeah. the member international skateboarding took note. Tampere is as rad, but has been a bit more below the radar. Okay. So we had, we had like a um, brother from different mother kind of thing of like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are killing it. We think we're killing it. Let's hang out. Yeah, and yeah. Um, between the National Lottery and the the Finnish Embassy and a guy called Vanti Lindeval, who does a lot of the, the filming, the cultural production in Tampere skating, is a good skater and, and does went to film school in Helsinki, I think. So does very ambitious film as well as leading the film module at the Skate High School. Mm-hmm. He got some Finnish Film Institute funding. So basically a crew of Tampere skaters came to Nottingham and spent a week a week with us. And then we all together went to Malmö. Okay. And kind of formed this partnership, I guess, where we just kind of share and hype, just are each other's fans. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, I, and I, I visited Tampere finally after COVID had gone away. Um, I visited um, in the spring. Right. And Skateboard GB supported me to do that, um, which was really, really appreciated. I would love to go back with a, with a, a bigger Nottingham crew and do some more sustained partnering to get kind of young people who don't otherwise travel with skateboarding to maybe build some DIY with Temo and learn construction skills and maybe we could host some of the, of the young people from the college to do some stuff with our education providers. But yeah, we've, mm-hmm. got, a, we've got a close relationship with the Tampere crew, which is awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, as you said, it's too bad that it's under the radar. Like, I, I'd love to see more uh, more coverage of uh, of that scene and and uh, what they're doing over there. And I think this is, this is a common challenge for purpose driven skateboard projects across the world. Mm-hmm. But unless there is that hook into the things that mainstream skateboarding understands, it tends to be under the radar. So yeah. if you've got like a a pro advocate 
and that's the ideal that you've got the activist and the cool ass skateboarder in in one human body in Leo, mm-hmm. and also being a, a decent human being as well, which makes it just this ideal thing. Mm. Being a little bit kind of critical, but mainstream skating doesn't care unless it's got the thing that it understands. It's not going to pay attention to it. Mm. And you know, people like Osh Tamas who are kind of elevating the art of telling stories, what you're doing yeah. in telling stories, hopefully is going to change this. Absolutely. But, but uh, yeah, I guess um, platforms like mine or, or what Osh is doing with the skate room, I mean, that's obviously a much bigger platform, but it's still, it's kind of not enough, I guess. I'd love to see that on a much wider, you know, scale. Yeah. I mean, it's important that people like us uh, talk about, about these uh, initiatives, but uh, yeah. I, I'd love to see it in more mainstream skateboarding media for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, and Christian e- Eblin made the point really well in Pushing Borders Malmo. Mm-hmm. Obviously being self-effacing because she rips. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so she, she for, for folks that don't know, she Seattle-based. She's a you know, professional skateboarder. She's got a name on the board. She co-runs uh, Skate Like a Girl. Right, right, yeah. Um, it's a very, very, very purpose-driven project. Mm-hmm. And she spoke alongside Gustav and, um, uh, and Leo at um, Pushing Borders Malmo. And she made the point that most social skateboarding projects are founded or run by average or below average skateboarders, which is definitely the case in my case, mm-hmm. particularly as I've got older. And they can often not be, uh, sort of to quote her or sort of paraphrase what she said, Yeah, yeah. if a couple of the guys absolutely ripped in Seattle kind of got on board and advocated for what they were doing, it would be so much easier. Mm-hmm. But there is a tendency for there to be a kind of a, a low level of leadership amongst current relevant sponsored skateboarders, mm. except for those few unicorns like Ryan Lay in the US, Leo Vowles in France, who people think are cool, like people really rate, they're amazing skaters, but they're also giving their time and they're, they're sharing that scarce relevance and, and clout that they have for the greater good. Yeah. And, um, you know, down the line, that'll have dividends for their sustainability of their career and also feeling good in their soul that they've done an amazing thing. But there's very few skaters of that kind of caliber caliber and visibility that are sticking their necks out. And I think there is a, particularly in Britain, there is quite a strong perception that the sort of thing I do isn't cool. Mm-hmm. Which hurts because I really like cool skate. I, I like niche cool skateboarding. I'm, I'm a fan of it. Yeah, yeah. I pick the clobber I wear really carefully. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd for that sort of stuff. <laughs> I love cool skateboarding, but cool skateboarding doesn't love me, and um, it's a, it's a pretty abusive relationship. <laughs> and it's really interesting dissecting why that is. Why that is, and we can uh, maybe chat about that. There's all sorts of. I've been told it by some people. Okay. So, for example, um, quite a few. Current sponsored skateboarders really do not like the idea of coach skateboarding. So that kind of line of like, I didn't need anyone showing me to skateboard. Um, you know, why do you need this? Yeah, uh, it's not legitimate. You know, it's the kind of um, generational thing. Uh, we, my generation, your generation. I mean, you're about ten years younger than me, I guess. Yeah, around there. A uh, generation, a couple of generations below us, and those above me. We're kind of a school of hard knocks, often. We went into the city and pushed our way into skateboarding. Right, right. Often unaware of our privilege as being able-bodied men, mm. um, straight-appearing cis males. And it's a different time now, but even where there isn't the kind of the available responsible parenting, even if you have a more chaotic household, children and young people, until they're kind of 14, 15 at the youngest, aren't going into the city on their own in a way that I was when I was their age. Yeah, yeah. 
So the question is then, how do you get into skateboarding if it isn't through a coached environment? Right, yeah. And then if you're having additional barriers, particularly financial barriers, so you're from a low-income community, how is skateboarding accessible to you? Yeah, yeah. But that in turn creates images that are uncool. So we found out for quite a while in Skate Nottingham and talking to Dave from Shreve North, he had a similar experience. We would post a, a photo of like a banging skate photo. Mm-hmm. And Skate Nottingham, we're very, really careful about our social media, the way we present ourselves. A guy called Tom Quigley, who's a, a great skate photographer, uh, as well as an activist community organiser. He takes care of how Skate Nottingham appear to the world. Mm-hmm. He's our creative programme director. And he, he's very careful about branding. He makes sure stuff is as authentic to kind of skate culture as it, as it can be. So we don't let a bad photo go out there. Mm-hmm. So we'll put a banging skate photo out of a, a guy dressed cool doing a back nose blunt. But we'll also put a photo out there of a, of a beaming child in tracky bottoms standing on my skateboard for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And there'll be an amazing story about that child, about the kind of challenges that they face to get onto that skateboard. Yeah. We found if we put a banging skate photo out, we get ping, free is following you. Ping, vague is following you. Like, yeah, the, the cool guys are following us. Yeah. The second we put out a picture of a kid in tracky bottoms, we get unfollowed. So there's that idea of that kind of on-the-ground activism, the the delivering, the doing skateboarding in a a way that is accessible, is purposively accessible to people from a low-income background, includes a number of kind of signifiers that are uncool to skateboarding. Kids have got helmets on their heads. Of course they've got helmets on their heads. I do not want a 13-year-old on my watch falling on their head. Sure, yeah. I've got a responsibility for their well-being. Mm. I've got safeguarding responsibility. And they're going to be in an environment which is safe, because they have additional needs and additional barriers, we are going to be, and it is our pride to be good role models to those young people, mm. particularly if they don't otherwise have them. That's our transformation. Like, if that makes us uncool, fine. Yeah, let's be the uncoolest people ever. Yeah, <laughs> if, we, if, if we're uncool, go sit in a puddle. You know, I, I, I would rather be uncool and still do that. That but that does make projects like Nottingham sit outside the interests of the mainstream. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Um, we're not we're, we're not in London. We're doing stuff that some parts of skateboarding think is pretty uncool. Mm. Yeah, as you said, uh, and I never really thought about this, but like Instagram is really designed for like a, a cool aesthetic skate photo will get lots of likes just because people enjoy looking at it. And But if you shoot a photo of a kid with a helmet on a skateboard and like getting a, a skate lesson of some sort, it's not all the same thing and it's not as cool, I guess. But I, I think it's rad. It's obviously amazing that people like yourself and other people are, you know, teaching skateboarding to young kids and bringing skateboarding to underprivileged uh, populations and everything yeah and that is the transformation of people like leo yeah leo is unequivocally cool lucy adams in the uk mm-hmm. so my colleague lucy she dresses cool she skates cool people want to do photo um features with her you know she is a pioneering british female professional skateboarder as well as being an activist and and now working as progression lead for skateboard gb right yeah, yeah she lives it in in every aspect of, of her of her life but she's taking a lot of weight. Mm. You know, Lucy can't do it all on her own and being a skateboarder in Britain that people care about, who is also doing you know, unequivocally good work. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's fine if uh, people don't put likes on Instagram or whatever. Like, uh, as long as you feel good about what you're doing with Skate Nottingham and as long as it's inspiring other people to start initiatives like Skate Nottingham and, uh, yeah. and 
just keep pushing it and, and uh, having fun and, and introducing young, a younger generation to skateboarding. That's really all that matters. If, if uh, people think it's not cool, well, fuck them, you know, whatever. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. I'm very solidarity in being a nerd. And that was one of the most important things in pushing borders. Like we were in a room with our people. Yeah. And yeah, it, exactly. that, that, that incredible kind of feeling of energy of community. And without that kind of outside in us, I don't know whether I would have the friendship with Will Ascott from Free Movement or Tom Critchley from Concrete Jungle that kind of brings us together and makes us really, in quite a ruthless way, want to do things that are transformative. Yeah. Because we kind of have to, that, you know, vans aren't giving me a, a ton of money to do stuff or, you know, Vague won't run a photo feature on this sort of stuff. So we have to do it ourselves. Mm. And that, that creates energy and momentum and, and motivation to do it. And also collectivity. Mm-hmm. That thing that maybe British skateboarding struggles at in being a group of very, very passionate, willful individuals without the culture of communality that the Nordics have, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This kind of outside in us throws us together and makes us do stuff together and gives us a sense of solidarity between us. Yeah. So with my skateboard GB role, I really see the main value of my role in being the biggest fan, the biggest supporter, the biggest advocate of all of these newer social skate actors and projects and trying to help them grow and and become sustainable and become change makers. Most of them already are, that can keep on going beyond burnout. Mm. That becomes quite a risk for anything like this. So tell me about like Skateboard GB. And, and so I understand that so you've um, got on board pretty recently, right? Like last year or two years ago? So I will be coming up to my two-year anniversary around about now, but full-time in April. Okay. I had a long goodbye from university. I had to work a three-month notice period. So um, 1st of April was when I started full-time for Skateboard GB in 2021. Right. Okay. So I've had all of 2022, uh, most of 21, and then just obviously the start, first start of 23. And Skateboard GB came out of Skateboard England. Mm-hmm. Skateboard England was the, the nascent organisation created when it became a strong likelihood that um, the skateboarding would be in the, the Tokyo Olympics. Mm-hmm. And then that gained capacity. It became a, that became a certainty. The formalised structure of having a governing body in each of, of, of the UK's um, devolved administrations, Skateboard Scotland, Skate Northern Ireland, right. Skateboard Wales, and Skateboard GB grew out of Skateboard England. So Lu- Lucy Adams was its original chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, she then stepped down. She would more than served her time in terms of that. And then later, she successfully applied for a role of progression lead. So Lucy started a few, few months after I did. Okay. And I was recruited for the community development officer role Yeah. when that role was entirely funded by a, a company called Habito Mortgages, who are kind of a disruptive um, financial technology-based mortgage lender that try and make mortgage lending easier. Okay. But they had a focus on communities and the investment in communities. So they very significantly sponsored Skateboard GB up until the turn of last financial year. Okay. And my role was funded by that in order to support skatable spaces, particularly non-traditional ones, the DIYs, town centre projects, mm-hmm. meanwhile projects, or temporary projects, temporary activations, and things that kind of blur the boundaries of what is a skate park, but also had a strong activist core to it. 
So I had eight of those projects I looked after for my kind of first year alongside developing a progression framework for beginner level skateboarding. So young people having their first bash can have some kind of celebration reward. Mm-hmm. And it was quite a competitive recruitment process, I'm told. And mainly my skate Nottingham activism got, got me the offer. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, with your background for this role, I mean, yeah, you were. I'm sure there were other candidates that were valid or whatever, but uh, you seem like the perfect uh, person for this job. You know, in the future, when I move on, there'll be, you know, coming up some great candidates who applied then who will be uh, more than ready. Sure to take that on um, and develop it. But I had a bit of an advantage in the skate knocking being an earlier ad- adopter and um, my kind of economic development background right, in, yeah. in government and then university gave me some kind of, at least it gave me the jargon <laughs> to, mm. uh, to be able to like communicate with local government, which is a big part of my role. So were you working? Yeah, you were working there when the Olympics happened, right? I was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you, you, don't, you don't handle at all like things related to Olympics, right? Like you're... I don't. So sport in it in Britain is funded by two funders. UK Sport, uh, so two, two what we call quangos, quasi-autonomous non-governmental organisations, okay. uh, sort of arm's length bodies from, from the department. UK Sport fund elite sports. So UK Sport funded our kind of Olympic journey. Mm-hmm. And my colleague and quite long-term friend, Daz Percy, is our, um, our kind of performance lead who looked after the, the team that worked their way towards Tokyo. And, and in the end, it was Bombette and Sky who, who represented GB at Tokyo. And mm-hmm. Sky obviously became uh, GB's youngest ever summer medalist, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And now we have a, have a new team, which includes Sky and Bombette, that Darren and um, Sam Beckett multi-X Games medalist, vert and big transition skater, and lovely human being. So he works two, two dads on the performance side. Cool. Lucy works on the progression side, so the talent progression from grassroots to performance and the development of coaching. And uh, she has two colleagues, Amber Edmondson, who worked for Women Skate the World, runs yep. a new, new wave programme for marginalised genders, and a guy called Richard Gowers, who runs our events. Both those guys work too, Lucy. Okay. And I'm, I'm the only resource around the community's side. So I'm funded, funded by Sport England, who is the other quango, who look after grassroots. Mm. So my role might be better sort of described with widening who goes into skateboarding and creating the facilities and the spaces for it. And the organisational infrastructure, the activism that allows those things to happen. Mm-hmm. The, the kind of the human side of the grassroots stuff. So obviously we need great skate parks and we need skatable spaces in, in city centres and young people not being criminalised for skateboarding. Mm-hmm. But to get that, we need the organisation and the activism that makes all that stuff happen because it won't happen on its own. And that's my role, I guess, in a nutshell. Okay. So how do you divide your time between both uh, endeavors? Like, uh, I'm sure Skateboard GB is like your, your main focus on a day-to-day basis, but like how much time do you dedicate to Skate Nottingham on the side? So it's very challenging. And it's something that my, my boss, James Hope Gill, worries a lot about, not in least about my kind of well-being. I think, and this could be challenged, that the benefits for Skateboard GB of Skate Nottingham is Skate Nottingham as an early adopter and a trailblazer. Mm-hmm. So the better Skate Nottingham do, and the more they transform, more we transform Nottingham, there's learning for Skateboard GB. There's kind of like a laboratory that I have some control over in Nottingham. Yeah. And there's all the relationships that are quite mature with the council, with other, other main, major stakeholders. And so as long as that's being dealt with appropriately, Nottingham is one of my key foci. Mm-hmm. 
alongside other high potential important cities, Manchester, Birmingham, the Northeast with work that Dave's done with Shrebber North, Ipswich with work that Jamie and co have done with Skate Suffolk, Skate Southampton, the amazing work that Steve Baker and Jamie Burton do there, a loads of projects around London, a lot of exciting stuff around Bristol. So I kind of have a, a rule that if I'm going to do any Nottingham stuff during the nine to five, I need to have done at least three other cities first. Okay. To make sure I'm not like leaning into what's familiar for me to do. Mm-hmm. The downside is I don't want to, because a lot has been achieved in Nottingham. Nottingham remains a, a key partner for Skateboard GB. So it's easy to also see a negative of Nottingham being unfairly dealt with for its achievements because of my Skateboard GB role. Because I because I almost overplay my oh, yeah. sugar. I can't do anything with Nottingham because that's also me. Yeah. So I try and get the balance right of making sure I'm not I'm not using skateboard GB time and my salary to spend it inappropriately on Nottingham work, and I'm yeah. not using my skateboard GB leverage to unfairly benefit Nottingham. Sure. But at the same time, I'm not disbenefiting Nottingham as a major trailblazer, and, I, and there's a constant balance there. Okay. And that balance might change in the future, not least because I don't think the UK will be like Sweden, where there is Malmö as a single hub, Mm -hmm. or Finland, where Tampere is kind of the Finnish Skate Association, are kind of based with Tampere and not in Helsinki, because of the kind of the the gravity of what they've created. Mm. British skateboarding is very strong in a number of cities, and it has that history and that kind of multipolar pool. So I don't think we would have a a single Malmö in Britain. We'll have a a number of cities that are kind of skate cities. Sure. And if one city kind of gets to that status before Nottingham, which is very likely, that will sort of change the the, the dividing. Because it's pure pure luck. It's driven on a kind of an influential councillor, an elected member or or MP or or very senior officer in a council wanting it enough. Mm. And we haven't yet had someone that has that kind of leverage going, right, I am going to transform this city through skateboarding. That's going to happen soon, I think. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of candidate cities that are close towards going, we want to do an awful lot with skateboarding. We want to significantly invest. Nottingham is not in that place. So our city council is not saying, we love what you've done. We're going to throw some money at this. We're going to you know, fund a, a post or anything. You know, Skate Nottingham is still quite a guerrilla project. Mm. It's still a very grassroots project that, that hasn't had the door fully open despite the spaces. Everything has been a bit of a, of a fight, both in terms of the funding and in, in the politics, which means okay. we have the organisational capacity because we have to, because it's, ne- it's never easy. I'm a maturity so I do skate not even in my, in my in my spare time. Mm-hmm. I do skate would you be full time in my day job. But Skate Nottingham has 1.6 people working in a little office with me. Tom Quigley covering um, the creative programming, the comms, the media, and a guy called Ted Hepburn is a super young guy who came in through a, a supported project for for younger people who were at the time out of work. He's now working on a freelance basis three days a week on kind of project management, I guess, and, and, and monitoring. Okay. And then we have about, about a dozen coaches and volunteers who do the on-the-ground work. Most yeah. of them are paid, and they're paid like a good good hourly whack, which is really important. Yeah, yeah. So Skate Nottingham can kind of roll on without me, but I do a lot of the, I do the grant capture, and um, I do a lot of the sort of idea generation, I guess, the directing. Mm. So it, it is challenging doing both. I'm sure. It looks like it, yeah. And so do you think you'll eventually stop working on Skate Nottingham and fully dedicate to Skateboard GB? Or would you still like to keep doing stuff for for Skate Nottingham since you started it and it's like your baby, kind of? 
I mean, I think it's really important that people my age are able to give things away. Sure. And that, that's a real challenge for skateboarding, particularly British skateboarding. A lot of boarding 40-something men are with certain perceptions and experiences based on their own trajectory into skateboarding, mm-hmm. keeping control of it and wanting to keep control and oft, often being a bit hostile towards anything different than you. Mm. So I don't want to be part of a problem. So uh, my answer would be an if-based answer. But um, it depends what's happened in nationally or locally. Mm-hmm. My love... Um, I think where I can add value without crowding younger and more diverse people out is around education and the the transformative potential of skateboarding for education and activism and and community organising and sharing my kind of experience and knowledge with that and trying to empower others to do it. So whichever trajectory is most placed to use me Mm -hmm. in a good way, whether that's local or national, that will be what I end up spending I'm, I'm 45. Yeah. yeah um, so if if I can make the most impact nationally, and yeah, Manchester or Birmingham or or the northeast rockets off and becomes the future of British skateboarding, mm-hmm. my focus will will become 100 percent national, and I, I won't be able to do skate Nottingham anymore. Right. Likewise. If Nottingham achieves what we want to achieve, which is becoming this kind of brigadier-like entity that can have a consistent cohort of young people, mm-hmm. uh, and our hope is that we have kind of college-age young people, university-age young people, and the young people that fall through the gaps, and we deliver a, a kind of a multi-modular learning and employability experience that is very strongly rooted in skateboarding, mm-hmm. which I think to me is the is the wonder of Brigaria that they there's a very genuine use of what it is out of skateboarding that that makes education work for some people. Mm-hmm rather than this attempt to kind of reverse engineer and get through kind of curriculum barriers of we're going to teach you employability and we're going to do a bit of board painting at the end, that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. which can be kooky to kind of call skaters. Yeah. And it also misses a trick, I think. If we're able to do that at scale and at the kind of scale where Nottingham needs me, that needs me to kind of, I guess, almost be like a John Dalquist-like character. Yeah. I could see like, it sounds like I'm like some kind of like Jesus figure, and I'm, 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 I'm trying to like. I don't want to crowd people out, and I don't want to overstay my welcome in either of the national role or the or the local role. But also, yeah, any kind of profession has a problem with um, with retaining skill and knowledge and what we call kind of corporate memory. Mm-hmm. So I also don't want to like cut my nose off to spite my face. Skateboarding is a hard tra- trajectory to predict. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where I can add most value is a hard thing to predict. So, yeah, for the time being, I'm doing both nine to five. My main day job focus is national. Nottingham is an important example and toolkit and laboratory for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my evenings and on Saturdays, I, I do skate Nottingham. I don't skateboard enough. I'd love to skateboard more. And I love spending time with my little girl. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just curious to ask you about one thing. I don't know if you want to talk about this a little bit. You and your wife dealt with infertility problems for quite a, a few years. And eventually you had your daughter, which was born uh, four years ago almost, Yeah, right? she, she, she'll be five in February. Sorry, yeah, five. Of course, that has nothing to do with skateboarding in itself, but like, uh, I'm sure that must have had a huge impact on you, on both of you in your lives and your like mental health and has probably pushed you to you know, put a lot of energy and effort into making Skate Nottingham as best you could. And um, yeah, I was just interested in asking you about this because I, I, feel, I feel like that's a very important subject that many, many people go through and don't really address because it's such a sensitive topic or... I mean, there's been a number of skaters who've, who, who've been quite open, like Mike Carroll, for example, talking about miscarriage. Okay. 
I'm not going to name any more people because there sure, are people sure. on, on Instagram that have shared their stories, and I'd need their kind of their kind of consent of, of who sure, they want their sure. stories shared with. But um, yeah, I mean, it took 11 years for us to to get to Maisie, and we we, we lost five babies in in, in that time. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of gendered challenges between the kind of expectations of how men should be and the healthcare system and the terrible physicality and the emotional impact on, on the female partner and how you support your female partner if you're in a, in a heterosexual relationship as, as the male and whether you're doing that right and you have your own mental health struggles during that period. I think the things to kind of dissect from that for this conversation are, I mean, another thing to say is I, my wife's coping strategy was to be 100% open and like yammer on to anyone that wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people you know, are struggling with, with starting a family and stuff like that and want to talk, like just hit me up on Instagram at Glort Snacks. I'm really sorry if it takes me like six months to get back to you. <laughs> my personal Instagram is like one of the direct met ways that people contact me for skateboard GB stuff. So I'm, I really struggle like managing it. So apologies to everyone of my friends. I've, I've been a bad friend to through Instagram. First of all, skateboarding for all of its ills. And I want to be critical about some of skateboarding's ills. You know, skateboarding has incredible potential and there are frustrating aspects of it that don't meet that potential. And a lot of that has to do with it is whiter and maler and straighter than it needs to be still. Yeah, uh, and yeah, you know, people like Tom Botwood have spoken about about their role and how they see their role in creating space to, for it not to be like that. And that's awesome, and it's changing. It needs to change more. Mm. But skateboarding's strengths in that time was creating for me strong non-traditional male friendships. So I was at university for a lot of uh, my wife and I's kind of fertility struggles, and um, university is a very competitive, individualized environment. So I didn't have colleagues that really cared, or who, who were close enough to, for me to share that, that with. So, um, and it was skateboarders who who were my my obviously my wife had a support structure, of, uh, support group, or... but my support structure was, was skateboarders, so. and you know, from all backgrounds, including people that hadn't been to university, that hadn't got jobs, that gave them that sort of stuff. And the most emotionally intelligent people in my lives were dirtbag skateboarders who were there for me, like without any kind of judgment. And they were people that visited me and Katie when we were in hospital. They were people that know my daughter's name and I know their children's names. Uh, Not necessarily skateboarders who I actually physically had to kind of we skate with, but more of like a social media friendship with. Yeah. Yeah, so lovely human beings like Carl Beachy, who I've met twice, but oh, yeah. I, I know on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Paul O'Connor, another sort of skate academic. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, people are just good people for yeah, yeah. kind of say nice things and make you feel like you're not alone. Sure. And skateboarding for me was a, was the community outside of my immediate family that that were there for me. When for me, obviously, I tried to be there for my wife, and I failed in a lot of cases. But for my support structure, it was skateboarding. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot more could be done around understanding mental health, not as something that needs to be always around the level of awareness raising. We do a lot of awareness raising in skateboarding and mental health, and that is amazing. Mm. Props to Ben Raymond's foundation, props to John Rattray, mega yeah, props yeah. to both. But we need to go beyond awareness raising, and John Rattray's done a lot of this in his recent zine, and start thinking about what can we do? What mm. makes people develop poor mental health? How can we yeah. help? And how can skateboarding specifically help with that? Work, home life, alcohol and uh, drug dependency, bad jobs, bad houses, bad relationships with parents, all that stuff can result in bad mental health, can be drivers of bad mental health. We're not there yet Mm. in practical solutions towards that within skateboarding. 
Skateboarding itself, shitty jobs in skateboarding, for example. Sponsorship, ending, people being dropped, people having bad role models, all of that sort of stuff. So we can learn from what skateboarding is good at. My kind of infertility journey with, with my wife and now with wonderful Maisie. And we can get some praxis. What do we do that is practical, that can uh, help us with these drivers of poor mental health, not just the awareness of mental health? And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm careful with saying just because you know, awareness of mental health is, is, is important as to itself. Of course. But yeah, we need to take it to a, a step further, basically. Yeah. So I usually end my interviews with this question, which is what's the most valuable lesson that you feel you've learned from skating? Is there something that comes to mind as something that was like a that very valuable life lesson? Yeah, perseverance. Like skateboarders, we try and try and try and try, and we might not win. Mm-hmm. So with any kind of activism, you know, Nottingham may not be a, a skate-friendly city, but it's not entirely within my power to achieve. There are other factors that might... But the journey, the, the, the perseverance, the trying, is intrinsically important. Mm-hmm. I might never... I really want to be able to do backside flips again this year. My kickflip used to be pretty good. And since having knee issues, I've lost a lot of pop and my kickflip's not that consistent. I can't really do backside ollies anymore because my kind of shoulder snap has got oh, weaker yeah. as I've got older. So I might not be able to do a backside flip ever again. It's possible. But the, the journey, the battle is an important life lesson. And the setting yourself up to do something, mm. even though you might not be able to do it. I think one of the skater mindsets that makes a lot of exceptional people coming from a skate... I've not even, like, stand the likes of Badir Bakar or Rich Holland. Oh, They're yeah. these incredible people that I've been able to work with. Their high-functioning incredibleness, part of that is their skateboarding. And mm-hmm. it is that kind of... You're not an expert, you may not be very good at it, you keep on trying and trying and trying, and you become an expert at lots of ancillary things. And it's the, the trying that is most important. Absolutely. Okay, so let's uh, let's finish with the friends' questions. Okay, let's start with this one. Thanks, Kenton. Now, Chris, um, just wanted to say congratulations on the Tramland spot. And my question, I guess, stems from that, and is what do you think are the future prospects for skateboard public realm in British cities, and are there any targets for future projects? Cheers. I'm struggling with a faint kind of South accent there. So I yeah. think it might be Stu. Is it Stu or is it? That's uh, Toby Alexander. Oh. Uh, he studies like uh, urbanism, right? I've only corresponded him with him over, so I've never heard his voice, so I can forgive myself. Oh, okay, okay. Really good question. Yeah. And thanks. And yo, Toby, we're going to be doing loads of stuff together with Manchester, which is sick. Yeah. So going back to that early point of skate-friendly cities, what is it for? What is the social moral purpose of a skate-friendly city? A skate-friendly city results in a more inclusive, humane city for everyone. We are frontiers, men and women, that are annoying and we're resilient like cockroaches. So we can take control of the space and resist some of the forces of late capitalism that make that space at risk. So skate-friendly cities can can make cities good for other things, be it child-friendly cities or sustainable transport cities or one-minute cities or what have you. Mm. Uh, Cities of learning so my objective for that is to be able to share a method and be able to build the the other thing i believe in is we need institutions and our friends like tom critchley badir won't be surprised i'm gonna have a quote mark fisher he's like my intellectual hero the late mark fisher he talks about the left lacking strong institutions 
the left is all about ideas and not about doing and organising. And when we do, we, we fight amongst ourselves. And skateboarding is the worst at fighting amongst ourselves. <laughs> so to deliver skate-friendly cities and, and skateboard infrastructure around cities, we need the institutions to do it. Mm. So skateboarding needs to be much more... We need to just get over ourselves and just organise. Yeah. And it's not kooky. You can do it in the coolest way and sure. the most authentic way. So my vision is to have more organisations like Skate Manchester that Toby's involved in that are resilient and sustainable. To start with demonstrator projects like Tramline Spot in Nottingham that we can get the praxis, the methodology, mm-hmm. share that methodology and be able to tweak it to the different local environments. Get a few more frontier projects for getting the funding. It can't all be funded by the public sector. You know, the likes of Vans, if they're going to be funding in London, they could well be funding elsewhere. And as soon as we have a few more of these different scale of skateable cities, whether that's a bench that's skateable in one city like Bristol with uh, the Bear Pit to somewhere like Tramline Spot, that's kind of a purpose-built city centre space, to maybe augmented existing spaces, I think the momentum will be with us and we'll get more and more cities coming coming online. So once we've built the institutions and we've got the I've got the, the case studies, my, my vision will be we'll have skate friendly infrastructure in most towns and cities around the country. Mm-hmm. And I think we're gonna I think we're gonna get there. I think the momentum will become irresistible. Okay, let's do the next one. This one is from Danny, Dania Bohawa. You mentioned her earlier. Yeah, yeah, yo, yo, Danny. She said, in relation to your work at SBGB and the organization as a whole, can you tell us something that is, one, a rose, two, a bud, and three, a thorn? I mean, the rose would be the achievements of Lucy and my colleagues like Amber, and also work of Daz and, and, and Sam, and this sort of wider cohort of coaches in creating a career development structure for skateboarders. Okay. Which is just, a, it wasn't there when I, I started, it's now there. And I think it's world-leading, and that's world-leading and purpose-driven. So, you know, the recruitment of someone like Amber Edmondson and the work Mm. that she's done in the past means that core value of coaching for good work, in both senses of the word, both in terms of pay and conditions, but also in doing good, Mm -hmm. and stuff that can change the world in terms of inclusivity and diversity. That infrastructure and the creation of that is the biggest rose. Maybe the bud is some of the stuff I've been doing the, around Toby's question around skate-friendly cities. Yeah. We're getting there. We're, we're, we're getting some early wins. It's still a battle. Mm-hmm. I think we need to create the infrastructure that is the community-level organising, and then, then we'll get more and more wins. Kind of a thorn, I guess, is the perception in British skateboarding of all that. Yeah. Skateboard GB used to get a lot of ish on Instagram. Uh, it doesn't so much anymore, and a guy called Jake Powell has elevated the quality of our film and photography. That means that people kind of see what we're doing and and kind of see that it's good. And that's Jake's achievement. Jake's the best. But there's still a connection, an overriding connection, Skateboard GB and the Olympics. Mm. And it's it's a lot more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. And getting that understanding that we're a very small team, but we're achieving a lot and we're here to help across every aspect of the skateboarders' lives and journey. Realising that we're not going to be doing all of it and we're going to be failing at quite a lot of it to start with. But for God's sakes, we're all skateboarders. We can be comfortable with failure. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, the biggest thorn is that kind of perception issue that we've got still out there in the world. Uh, let's do the next one. Another audio one. Hello, Chris. It is Tom Critchley here. I am super excited to hear that you made it onto the podcast I think that those listening will feel super enriched to share a slice of your ever-knowledgeable brain, and I can't wait to listen back to the podcast. Um, I was asked to send a question, which I, again, am excited to do. 
Yeah, as someone who considers themselves an early career researcher, loosely based around that phenomenon of skateboarding, you have been extremely helpful and supportive and instrumental in my career development. I would like to, off the back of that, ask you two questions. Is there anyone in your early career who had played, say, an instrumental role in your own development? And in terms of the work that you do with Skate Nottingham and see done in other organisations, how do you view the scalability of the work you do from, you know, teaching beginner skateboarding lessons all the way to kind of provision of career opportunities, say, for those who teach the lessons? Really excited to hear how you answer this and just listen back to the podcast. All the best. Chat soon. I knew it was Tom before he introduced himself. Uh, <laughs> apologies, I've, I've not had chance. I've rambled on too much to talk about either educate enough or tell you all the hilarious anecdote of Tom and I's experience of uh, the Finnish sauna and our divergent resilience when it comes to very cold water. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, yeah, good questions. Yeah, and Tom's the best and Concrete Jungle Foundation are the best. And it's yeah. really nice he's made time to, to ask the question. Um, in terms of my time as an academic who dabbled in skate academia, who my early career support was worth, first of all, in government, I had a lot of wonderful colleagues who remain my friends, mm-hmm. who in their own practice, they demonstrated that you don't have to be an expert. Multidisciplinarity is so important in policymaking and, and, and practice. Mm-hmm. So my, my close friend, Steve Mulligan, the best man at my wedding, who was my colleague when I was in the development agency, our boss, Andrew Morgan, and a previous boss guy called David Davis, who now works for the New Zealand government. He was an economist, an academic economist, who kind of nurtured my my early career development as a more kind of thoughtful, research-orientated uh, route for policy. And an early colleague called Jane Thorpe, uh, mm-hmm. who kind of looked after me a little bit and taught me how to use Excel properly and all that sort of stuff. Then moving into academia, I had a couple of colleagues in the economics department, a guy called Rob Ackrell, who's lovely, strong Europhile in an increasingly difficult environment to be a fan of Europe. A guy called Dean Garrett, who's an inspirational teacher of economics and um, a long-running colleague called Craig Bickerton, who has red-penned my work and makes my work a lot more succinct than my... My written work more succinct than my talkie. A <laughs> uh, man like developing to skate Nottingham, it's Stu. Like, Stu's a lot younger than me, but Stu was, like, basically mentoring me with Longer South Bank's kind of trailblazingness. And uh, Henry Edward Wood, uh, mm-hmm. hold tight Henry, was also super, like, generous with his time, came to Nottingham and helped us get things kicked off. And I was a bit of a, of a fan of his, a lot of a fan of his video work in, in Hold Tight London and stuff like that. So I was fanned out on all of that. And mm. then uh, people like Badir and Rich Holland more recently, David Goff, the landscape architect in Sweden, and Gustav, of course. Yeah. What I see the, the scalability of, of Skate Nottingham, and yeah. therefore the scalability of any British-based social skate organization. Mm-hmm. So we are unlikely to get big money from the likes of, of a skate brand, an endemic skate brand, Vans or Nike, aren't really investing in the way that we've seen in stuff like the, the home court development in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So it comes to what can we get from taxpayers' money in the charitable sector? What can we generate through, through social enterprise? And I think it comes down to education. Things like Educate, the life skills, the social work, the stuff that bridges barriers between skateboarding and wider social impact. So, so Skate Nottingham to become a kind of a college for everyone without borders. 
an yeah. urban lab that can work with colleges and universities in a space. Now we have a space, Tramline Spot, as a, as a community-designed, community-activated, community-funded, scalable public space, which is unique and incredible, and I can't believe we pulled it off. That provides an environment that people can learn, and that's potentially scalable. Okay, let's do the next one. Let's see. So my question to Chris as a practitioner in the built environment is how does he see the future of skateboarding, especially given that a lot of the public space that we now sort of do skateboarding or other activities like protesting or organising or just generally doing things that are outside of the societal sort of transactional norms, you know, how does he see skateboarding existing within the public-private sphere? Was that Badir? Yes, Badir Bikar, right? Yeah. Yeah, who would be a great person to talk to as well. A structural engineer who's very, very important in in kind of international skate urbanism, I think. And Mm -hmm. still super young and has a lot to give going forwards. Yeah, it was going to be a really difficult one. Like, how can skateboarding convert public realm into more humanitarian, inclusive, shared, nurturing environments within the parameters of late capitalism, I guess, and Mm. the the gentrifying city, the neoliberal city, all those sorts of things. And I think skateboarding's disruptiveness helps. It's resilience and disruptiveness. And by disruptive, I mean not like lads being loud. Mm. I mean our ability to kind of generate new ways of doing things and then run with it and be kind of frontiers, men and women. And I think I'll go back to the how we do that. That's the why should we do it with more kind of case studies of where we are doing it mm. and getting you know discussions like this where we're communicating success stories and getting people to understand how we got to that success story. And right. that's the thinness of the mainstream skateboard media. We'll send a couple of ripping skateboarders to skate this spot and then not tell the story of how the spot got there. Yeah, you know, That has to stop. Not least because it's, it's not celebrating the people that did it. Yeah. So I see a lot of uh, sponsor skaters getting amazing tricks at Bournebrook DIY in Birmingham. I'm not seeing enough like props to Bernie and uh, and Sean for making it happen, but yeah. also how the hell they made it happen. And mm-hmm. if we if we know as a community how you make that stuff happen, we can know how we work with the challenges that are inherent in a neoliberalizing city, mm-hmm. and how we can find new ways of doing things. Because there are new ways of doing things out there, we're just not hearing the stories of them. All right. Uh, this one is from Paul O'Connor. You mentioned him as well. Yeah. So he said, it's a bit of a utopian fantasy, but let us see where it goes. The UK has a history of new town initiatives dating back to Ebenezer Howard's Garden City plans in the late 19th century. Imagine you have the chance to make a skateboard-centered new town in the UK for 2023. What would you do? What would it be like? And would it still have a DIY? (laughs) I mean, yo, Paul. I really hope that Lucy Adams, if she's listened to this, has listened to this long enough mm-hmm. to hear perhaps the only person a little bit more verbose and over technicaling ideas than, than me. And that's definitely Paul, and he's a beautiful man for it. <laughs> I'm only using Lucy as a foil because she's so like focused and efficient with the way she communicates, and I'm not. <laughs> man, that's a big one, isn't it? Because it is a big one, I might dodge it to an extent. I think we have achieved worldwide successes in skateable cities through absences and through problems. 
So we, we Malma, Tampere, Nottingham, these are all post-industrial cities with very significant socioeconomic challenges. Mm-hmm. And skateboarding has got its foot in the door by being a solution to some of those challenges and being more resilient than other actors. So a tramline spot, for example, that was is going to be a mixed-use public realm that will include table tennis tables, a lawn tennis association, like closed-off tennis area maybe, basketball. The only thing there now is the skateboarding because we're the only people that have the toughness to stick through to the end of a yeah. very challenging project and actually ended up doing night shifts, building it ourselves to an extent. Wow the resilience of skateboarding and our kind of adaptability. Yeah. But the other reason it happened is because of a sense of crisis. Uh, a number of major players have gone bust, including the castle, the shopping centre that it's on the side of. How might we do all this in a city that's starting from a planned, or a town from a planned perspective? Mm-hmm. You know, the UK has got some new towns that were built after the war, Telford, Milton Keynes, etc. Milton Keynes is a pretty good skate city, but more recently they've not been the beneficiaries of these sorts of investments, maybe because there isn't the absence. So to create that, I think it would come back to how somehow having the power within that process, having the institution that was a partner to it. And maybe that is developing the the non-municipal partners, the Steve Baker from Skate Southampton has a wonderful term of if you want to achieve something in skateboarding and the city council isn't listening, find a big friend. In their case, it was John Hansard Gallery in Southampton that advocated for them. In Leo Vowles' case, it was the gallery and museum that advocated for them to them. So I think if you were developing a new town project, who would be your big friend to get your foot in the door? If it had a DIY, it should have a DIY because mm. a DIY is the unique environment for non-hierarchical learning. There you go, Lucy, I've got a big word in that I didn't have to get in. <laughs> An unnecessarily big word. A DIY gets people, different people together who know nothing about how to build stuff. They learn together, different people have different specialisms. The strong, resilient skate organisations and skate cities started with a DIY core. Mm. Malma, Tampere, those good dudes are throwing concrete together, throwing rebar together, developing skills in a spatially situated way. Bing! Big word number two. <laughs> so DIY gives that institution the skill set to be a strong, resilient, capable player in the massive headfuck of developing a new town. <laughs> so if you're going to do it properly, you need a DIY there. Otherwise, otherwise you won't have the skills and okay. you won't have the glue that sticks you all together so you're not bickering in a room. Okay, let's see. I have a few more. So one question I have for Chris is, do you think the attitudes of city officials towards skating is changing for the better? And how can more cities be encouraged to invest in public skate spaces? And then the other question I have is, Chris, when you started Skate Nottingham, you had a full-time job in a completely unrelated space. And I'm wondering what advice you'd give to people wanting to start community skate initiatives in terms of managing their time and energy in a sustainable way. Is that Rhiannon? Yeah, Rhiannon Bader from uh, Skatistan, but like the good push. Yeah. Yo, Rhiannon. Hope you're good. Hopefully hang out at Pushing Borders soon. Um, obviously good questions because Rhiannon's the best. And um, I think municipal officials, decision makers are becoming much more amenable to skateboarding across the global north. I think we have won arguments around unexpected things like micromobility, green transport, getting from A to B within a crowded city. You can take a skateboard on a tram. We've won arguments around we can reach hard to reach communities. And Gustav has got way more eloquent analogies than I have around, around that. 
uh, so I won't. And just listen to one of his many talks on the web about why, who skateboarding can reach. And that's been recognised. And that's been recognised a lot because of the work of all of you all out there making reality on the ground. I think Ocean Howell had a great starting metaphor to Pushing Borders 2018. He said, oh, yeah. I often imagine a skateboarder as a dog chasing a car. Yes, I remember, yeah. It's either an enthusiastic Labrador or it's like a, a snappy Alsatian who wants to bite the car. And then suddenly it's in the driving seat. What does it do when it's in the driving seat? Because it's a dog and dogs can't drive. (laughs) (laughs) And if it's the enthusiastic Labrador, you're like in keen, 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 keen skate mode. Mm. If you're like a snappy Alsatian, you've had a bad experience through working with municipalities and you're mega angry Mm. and you're still in fight mode. You're still in activist mode. So now the municipalities are listening. How do we talk to them? How do we, we press our advantage? I mean, that's the challenge. They are talking to us. They are into talking to us. Now we've either got to switch our stance and either talk to them with their language and be evidence-based and all that, or we've got to like drop the anger. Because the chances are the person who's now talking to us isn't the person that introduced the bylaw 20 years ago. Hmm. And we're yeah. angry for someone for something they didn't do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Municipalities are massive organisations. The chances are the person you're now working with is entirely innocent of the stuff that you're very legitimately cross with them about. Mm-hmm. So you've got to like just wipe that slate and start building that relationship anew. Exactly. And skaters find that hard to do. Around a second question about, you know, how do you start skate activism with a, with a day job? Yeah, how do you keep it doing in a sustainable way? Like, uh... I mean, I think positively, most of us who start doing this have day jobs because we're bringing skills in from outside. Mm-hmm. Skateboarding gives us skills for the day job. The day job gives us skills for skateboarding. And keeping that portfolio career helps in the early stages of setting these things up. But going back to like Tom's question of scalability, you can't do it forever. You're going to burn out. Yeah, yeah. And burnout is like the biggest challenge for the, these British organisations. And there are a number of these amazing people that I'm working with now that I'm really worried about burning out. So at some point, they've got to go from either the day job alongside the activism that goes into the activism full time, or they need to step back and get someone else doing it. So they've either got to let go or they've got to go all in. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't think you can, you have to do both to start with, because of both uh, reducing the risk, maintaining the livelihood, maintaining the income and having the skills mm. and the contacts for networks. But at some point, you've got to look after yourself, look after your mental health, look after your resilience, and either go all in or or, or step back. Okay. I have some questions from Ben Powell. So he asks, after such a long involvement in skateboarding, what is it that still feeds your desire to go out there and throw your body onto the ground in the pursuit of four-wheeled fun? Long involvement. I'm five to six years younger than you, motherfucker. (laughs) Ben is the best. Ben's probably the single most important person in British skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly for me, certainly. And you know, stoked to be, able to, like, be able to call him some kind of friend now and spend time with him and stuff. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether the fact that I'm still skateboarding and I haven't had that um, Rob Pluhowski thing of like, I don't want to mismerch my legacy. Uh, the oh, fact yeah. that I don't have a legacy. Like, <laughs> like it's 20 years of kickflips and K-grinds <laughs> to, to like a mediocre level. That means I can still more or less do at 45 what I could do at 25. Mm. So there's that, and it means I'm with my friends, and I love it, and it gives me a lot of life lessons and resilience. And I think we need to be doing it. And I think the minute we stop doing it as organisers, activists, we become the grumpy old man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of cyclical relationship between if you're not skating, you lose that connection, that bodily connection with skateboarding. 
And actually getting pain and hurt and falling on your ass in public and people laughing at you makes you a better human being. And be able to mm. dust yourself up and get back in again is a better, you know, a better skate coach or a better um, parent. You know, ordinary people laugh at skateboarders when they fall on their bums. Yeah. It's not funny. Well, it is funny if it's a funny fall, but it's just part of it. Failure is part of it. Exactly. And being yeah. prepared to fail and be able to start out something not knowing whether you're going to succeed makes us a fairly exceptional group of human beings. Yeah. And Absolutely. it's the best feeling to like catch a good clean kickflip, and I, I couldn't live without it, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I have three last ones. Let's do this one. Uh, hey, Chris, this is Mikko from Tampere. Quentin kindly offered me a possibility to ask you a question. So I'd like to know more about the recently opened tramline spot in Nottingham as I think it's still not very often in urban development that skateboarding is integrated in public space in such a way as tramline spot is. So, can you please tell us how the whole project was possible in the first place and what it required from the perspective of political decision-making and urban governance? I'm very keen to hear that. Thank you. That's my brother from a different mother, Miko, isn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. Some of uh, the, the skaters in, in Nottingham call him Finnish Chris. Because we're both bored and got beards and wear, wear five panel hats, and he's a lot bigger than me. So he's something <laughs> okay. like a, a bigger, better version of me. <laughs> and yeah, please, skateboarders in the world, like take some notice of the achievements of Tampa. It's a, just an incredible story and a beautiful place to visit. Mm-hmm. So I think the drivers of Tramline Spot are two or three long running, ambitious, imaginative open-hearted activism that broke down a lot about I, yeah i'm not trying to like take credit but i think skate nottingham as a, as a thing bigger than me made it something that the city council wanted to go with they couldn't resist it anymore because there's just so much good news coming out of it that yeah. it became a bit of a no-brainer so that organizing and i think jamie martin edwards in skate suffolk and will ascot in free movement have both said around often the thing that gets the most pushback in from skateboarding is the lessons the sessions the delivery it's a bit mm. kooky. It's a bit weird. What are you doing that for? But it's the thing that changes reality. Mm. It's the delivery on the ground that changes the world. If you're not doing the delivery, you're not going to make the space. You're not going to create the goodwill to get the spot. Mm-hmm. So Skate Nottingham's hard work, being out there, rain or shine, with the kids every Saturday for five to six years now. That's what makes things like Tramline Spot happen. And it's exactly the same case as in, as in Tampere. Yeah. Um, that's Temu and the guys just graft. The second thing is the absence, the, the crisis, the space created, the bad luck and the good luck of there, there being a space mm-hmm. and the city, the city needing us. And the heritage, there used to be, there's a historic space just by Tramline Spot with Broadmarsh Banks, Mark Gonzalez, Carl Shipman, all these kind of, Vaughan Baker has got an amazing line there in the, the first Unabomber video, these sort of weird brick banks. So there's a feeling of heritage and legacy that we couldn't fail, we had to create the space. Mm. But Miko's right, it's still super rare, especially in Britain, that we get a city centre space that is right in, in amongst it. It's not peripheral. That is co-designed, like two to three hundred young people have been involved in the design. It's not perfect. Now, the resin still needs redone in some of the cracks. It's got a rotting shopping centre to one side of it that leaks and someone just nicked our bucket. <laughs> but it is super rare because of a mixture of activism, luck and bad luck and heritage. Okay, I have two last questions. So this one is from Lucy Adams, which uh, we talked about earlier. So she said, I guess the question I'm asking myself and think we've spoken a bit on before is about getting better parks for skaters. So it would be something like, how do we get the stapel... stapel uh, how do you say that? 
Okay, I think I do it. Stapelbad's parking. Yes, okay. So, how do you get that? The Calais Beach, the skate park Amsterdam, Zeeburg, etc. in the UK. How do we stop the, the LA's box? So, she means local authorities. So, the British word for a council or okay, a municipality. Okay. Uh, and it's a very, very bureaucratic process in the UK to get a skate park built. Okay. It's generally led by the council. And that might be a very small parish council that might have a little bit of money or might have some land, or that might be a massive multi-hundred employee municipality like Birmingham. And they'll have similar processes around procurement and design. They might have similar prejudices. And they might want to just sort the problem out, like finish it, get the skate park built, and then move on to the next thing. So there's sure. a lot of complex things going. I think... And it's a pity that it couldn't be voicemail, so you might have all have had the contrast of, of Lucy's efficiency of communication <laughs> yeah. and strong southern accent compared to my Midlands northern drawl. <laughs> so stuff I've talked about before, you need the institution. Like Skaters need to be the strong partner in the room. There is that, and it is a lot of cases that I deal with kind of more kind of inquiry-like things where there's the entitlement, we want the skate park, it should be this. <laughs> Why should it be this? How can you make it that? How can you be a partner to that council? The council doesn't know. You can't expect them to know. They're not being a bad guy by not knowing. Mm. They're almost always a guy. It'll be an older white man, planner that is leading it, parks official. Mm-hmm. So you've got to educate them. You've got to work with them. So you've got to build the thing that can do that. But I think the second point of Lucy's argument is, you know, what is a good skate park? Yeah. Stapelbad's parking is a very varied skate park that has the accessibility the big open space with all of the movable obstacles and then the enormous great bowl and flow park. Countries like Britain have very little of either. We have very little skate parks that could host like an Olympic qualifying event. We have very little accessible skate parks. So the second thing that we need to be doing when we are building skate parks is giving power away. Mm-hmm. As able-bodied, white, capable skateboarders, we need to be thinking about people that aren't like us and advocating for them. That might be for women and girls. Uh, it might be for the differently able but partially sighted. It might be for difficult to guess challenges that someone from a low-income background might experience. Mm. It might be an elite skateboarder that needs somewhere to be able to do 540s. So we need to create the right opportunities in the right places with the right infrastructure to be advocating for those different kinds of what good is. Mm-hmm. And the Stapelbad's parking story is creating the infrastructure creating that Malmo story that meant that the city came to them about how to build the park and then they had the power to do it right. Okay. Power comes up a lot. Power, how you get it and how you build it. I don't know how to say Antonio Gramsci's hegemony or hegemony. I've only ever seen it written down. But how you create power mm-hmm. and then how you give it away and how you give it away to the people who don't have it. Okay, let's finish with this last question from another friend of yours. Hi, Chris. Stuart here. I've got two questions for you. One easy, one difficult. Firstly, what height is the perfect ledge? And secondly, how do you think the approach of councils towards the design and construction of skate parks is changing? So a perfect ledge is just below my knee height, but significantly below Stu's knee height because he's really tall. (laughs) Okay. I'm not ready for slappies yet. I want to be able to ollie into my stuff, yeah. but I'm 40, 45 years old, so I can't. I don't have a boom anymore to get onto stuff that's over knee height. Mm-hmm. So the perfect height, ledge height is something that I can have fun on, I can pop into, that's not going to kill me. Okay, okay. And I just have a nice time skating it. Uh, but I also think that is a good height for a skate park ledge, that we want street skaters to learn how to ollie. We want it to be accessible to all abilities of street skater. Yeah, yeah. 
So too low or too high happens in you know, British skate parks either have too low or too high ledges. Yeah. Somewhere around shin height, higher shin height is what we want to be seeing from my perspective. His next point is like, again, it's how is things changing? And he yeah. and I both know that things are changing for better, but they remain very frustrating. Mm. So mm. Stu's had a number of difficult experiences with some London boroughs that have promised big and then have reduced the, the, the extent of those promises. Uh, so there's been a lot of kind of nascent skatable space projects that may have happened in London that have either been temporary like the Strand or have kind of not happened or have got massively long lead times. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that we're having these conversations. Stu has some significant kind of property development chops so he can make arguments around sustainable transport, greening. And I think, that, I think that's what we need to be doing. We need to have these multifaceted arguments with local authorities, active transport, health inequalities, mental health, greening the grey. And Betong Park, who Stu works for, oh, yeah. are doing amazing work to make skate parks less like grey blobs mm-hmm. and make them interesting and sustainable, low noise, low dust, all that sort of stuff. These are the ways we, we push that municipal argument further into our favour. And the other thing Betong Park are leading in Norway is skate parks in schools. Mm-hmm. So skate space is spaces for learning and cities for learning because we can learn all these different things, not just skateboarding. That's how we, we continue to press our advantage. Skate parks that aren't just skate parks. Skate spots that aren't just skate spots. Listening back to Kristen Ebling in Pushing Borders, oh, yeah. she talked about like there's stuff that can happen around skate parks. Pensioners can play chess. Uh, you've got a, a vertical wall. People can climb up it. Mm-hmm. We're really bad at that stuff in Britain. Mm. So we will win more skatable space arguments if we win active city arguments, mm-hmm. sustainable, active, child-friendly city arguments. And that's where we'll get these multi-use or multifunctional spaces. And as a street skater, that's what I want to be skating. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to be skating a space with a load of like upper middle class kids who paid to be there, where I'm as white as everyone else <laughs> and as male as everyone else. Yeah, like, yeah, I want yeah. to be in the mix. You know? Sure, yeah. As a Absolutely. little kid from a rural area who dreamt of a city, and the city is somewhere full of people that don't look like me. I want to be in the city where Soy Panday talked about like places being too jungly and too like rural. Oh yeah. yeah skateboarding is a discipline of a city. Yeah. So yeah. I want to be in the mix and I want younger people to be learning from being in the mix and learning how to share space. So creating multifunctional multi-use spaces is the future and that's how we'll win. Absolutely. That's a perfect way to end it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Quentin. That's it for my conversation with Chris Lawton. Follow Chris on Instagram at Glottersnacks, G-L-A-W-T-E-R underscore snacks. Follow Skateboard GB at Skateboard GB and Skate Nottingham at Skate Nottingham to learn more about the various projects he's involved with. Visit skatenottingham.co.uk and make a donation if you can to help them keep making Nottingham a more and more skate-friendly city following the brilliant example of Malmö in Sweden. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Board.